Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Look at that. It is the 23rd of September. That means it's my birthday month. Actually, it just means that tomorrow is my birthday. I will be turning 49. If you would like to help make my birthday extra scrumptious and special, please drop by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show and bring a smile to my face. And hey, for $8 or more, I will pop out of a cake in your dreams. So tonight we had some fantastic calls. We had uh, the novel 1984 and its relationship, the relationship between totalitarianism, between dictatorships, and R versus K gene types and R versus K organisms. It was fantastic. Uh, I had some great ranks. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. However, I will say very honestly that the star of tonight's conversation was the Matthew and Christine show. So Christina is willing to date Matthew, but she wants to reserve the right to have affairs at some point in the future, have sex with other guys to, well, you'll have to listen to it <laughs> to see. And uh, you, you, my response was fairly incendiary, uh, but uh, I hope quite helpful. And uh, I think you'll find the challenging dance that we went through <laughs> quite, quite interesting. And if there's only one you're going to listen to, that would be my suggestion. It really was quite powerful. And then we had a fine young gentleman who called in, also named Matthew, who wanted to talk about a question we get quite a bit, you know, should I take unemployment insurance? I just got laid off and I'm an anarchist or a libertarian. Uh, and should I vote in something that's important to my kids that's going to have an impact on taxes and so on? So we did chew through that one. And I think you'll find that very helpful as well. Thank you, of course, for listening. Thank you for subscribing and donating. Uh, freedomandradio.com slash donate to help out the show. And without any further ado... Here are some great, great calls. All right. Well, up first on the show today is Ross. Uh, he wrote in and said, 1984 by George Orwell describes a dystopian future and is often compared with current society. How is our understanding of this change when we look at this book through the lens of R versus K selection theory? That's from Ross. Hi, Ross. Hey, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing all right about yourself. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm going to, obviously we have to assume familiarity with the novel and uh, you can do a search back through the archives. I had years ago a great conversation about 1984 uh, as it describes the mind of a murderer because, of course, Eric Blair slash George Orwell, as you can read about in his autobiographical book, Homage to Catalonia, joined... Um, in the Spanish Civil War and killed some people. Uh, and um, I think that he was morally sensitive enough that transla this translated into psychological aspects to his personality that I think erupted and showed form in uh, 1984. And um, I think that the R versus K stuff has some applicabil applicability to it. Do you want me to just launch into my thoughts? Do you, do you want to talk first? What's your preference? Um. Launch into your thoughts. Go for it. All right. Um, the R gene set, and for those who don't understand either this or 1984, go read the book 1984. After you've done that, um, you can um, uh, look at the Gene Wars presentations, which are available at freedomainradio.com or youtube.com slash freedomainradio. So the R gene set can only flourish when everyone is equal under an omnipotent predator, right? This is, this is the R gene set of like 
early sexuality and little care investment in children and feminized males and masculinized females uh, and uh, all of that. This can the, the optimum petri dish for the breeding of the R gene set is everyone is equally subjected to a, a virtually omnipotent predator. And so if you look at totalitarian regimes throughout history, they are, are perfect breeding grounds. And um, by that, I mean, of course, that there's generally an undifferentiated mass of people who are randomly preyed upon by the state. And um, uh, this promotes, uh, of course, uh, uh, this early breeding, this promotes um, single parenthood. And uh, so basically the R's genes that needs a wolf, a bunch of rabbits that need a wolf. And in my view, this is the great tragedy when people think about things like foreign policy. I think of things like foreign policy. And what they think is that like this balloon that's held underwater, that there's this, this, this group of people who are preyed upon like a mean guy holding a balloon underwater. And if you just take away the mean guy, then the balloon will pop up to the surface and the people will be free and so on. To a limited degree, I think there's some truth in that. But the idea that if you decapitate the leader, what squirts up from the jugular is volcanic sprays of human liberty is incorrect in general throughout history. And um, so if you look at something like uh, Assad uh, in Syria, or of course the late Saddam Hussein in um, uh, Iraq, uh, or any of the Ayatollahs in uh, Iran, and so on, and even to some degree Putin in Russia, what you see is you see a very powerful central figure who's the predator, uh, who then preys upon uh, the people, and that's really bad for the case, but that's really great for the R's. And so, to me, dictatorship is an are generated survival strategy, which is, if it is true that political dictatorships are an R generated, R gene set flourishing survival strategy, then this explains why when you remove a dictator from one of these societies, a new dictator springs into his place, because the dictator is necessary for the R mindset and for the R gene set. Uh, the rabbits know deep down that they can't survive without the wolves. Because if the wolves don't eat the rabbits, the rabbits will blindly reproduce until they strip all of the vegetation around, and then they all starve to death. And so the R gene set cannot survive since it's not self-limiting. It basically just reproduces as fast as, I would say, humanly possible, but as, as fast as rabbitly possible or oysterly possible. And uh, it knows that without the predators... It has no internal self-restraint structure. So without the predators, it's going to expand until it destroys the, um, the environment and then itself. So the, our gene set needs a predator in order to survive. Otherwise, it expands and destroys the environment. Now, with this understanding in mind, we can look at these societies and see that they are reflections to some degree of a genetic strategy that is followed by the R gene set. And this is why when you take out the leader, another leader pops into, uh, into, into place. And the other aspect, of course, of, of all of this is that, you know, when people always say, they always say the same thing. 
if you if you get rid of the person at the top of the power structure, it creates, what do we always hear, a power vacuum. And someone else will step in to take the place of the prior leader. Now, this is true for the Argenes set. Because if all of the wolves in general, like if all the wolves go off or die, some then there's more for the owls, and the owls will multiply, right? When you have a prey species in the absence of a particular predator, another predator will come along. If there's, let's say there's a bunch of gazelle uh, in Africa, and then there's some lions, the lions get hit by some specific toxoplasmic parasite or whatever, the lions get hit by some parasite that kills them. It's not then that the that the gazelle are going to live in peace and plenty forever, right? The gazelle are going to just have more and more gazelles until they strip all the vegetation and starve to death, or what is more likely, another predator is going to... So when you move in, right? So when you're in a predator-prey relationship, you get rid of one predator, it creates a predator vacuum or the invitation to feast for other predators to come in. But this is only if you're a prey species whose only practical limitation is the predation of others. And... This, you know, if you look sort of the one-child policy of China, that's the, the government has become the predator that basically, quote, kills, sometimes literally, but sometimes through, most times through prevention. The government has become the predator that kills the offspring of the prey species, the R-selected uh, species. So this all goes back to, to childhood, as, as we've talked about many times uh, before. The R gene set, I believe, is... is uh, comes to its fruition or is epigenetically programmed from basically conception onwards through childhood, the uh, R gene set is uh, selected and, and brought into being through environmental cues from the womb onwards. And so it definitely shows up there. But the Ks don't have a power vacuum. So when, the, when someone says, well, if you get rid of the government, there'll just be a power vacuum and something's going to rush in and take its place. Or when people say, well, if you don't have a country, then anyone's just going to invade you and take you over and so on. What they're saying is that they are an R gene set. And the R gene set is in a symbiotic relationship with the predators. Without the predators, the R gene set cannot survive. It's just maximum reproduction, maximum consumption, limited only by predation. But that limitation is absolutely necessary for the R gene set to survive. So if you look at this with regards to uh, 1984, the chilling thing about 1984 is the degree to which very few people have any problems with the existing uh, system. And um, I think that is... um, really important. Also, the other chilling thing that's in 1984 is the degree to which the children are turned against and spy upon their parents. Now, of course, that is um, really uh, important because the lack of parent-child bond is characteristic of the R gene set. Uh, Lack of investment in children, lack of investment in uh, in parents is is really really essential to the R gene set, and so what's interesting is that in in the West you see as a whole, for a couple of generations now the R gene set has been well fed, uh, and the K gene set has been starved, uh, and it's been uh, well shown that um, the more intelligent you are, uh, the less maternal feeling in general you have. Now this was not the case in the post war period. Right. I mean, during the baby boom, 
I mean, Phyllis Schlafly, nobody could deny, agree with her or not. She's a, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And uh, she had like six kids and so on. So that wasn't the case. But as the circumstances for a happy and healthy family life has generally receded, right? And more taxes and more working and, and uh, bad schools. And uh, it just becomes less attractive. And, and the risk of divorce and, and the risk of uh, what an old business colleague of mine used to call asset mitosis. You lose all your money to your wife and her lawyers. And alimony and child support and, and the sexual allegations in divorce, uh, accusations that can be thrown against people and so on. You know, parenting and family life in general, death sucketh <laughs> these days. And so smarter people tend not to have, uh, to have kids. And so the R gene set has generally starved. Uh, sorry, the, the R gene set has generally flourished. It's welfare and so on, right? But the K gene set has generally starved itself out. And so what's happened is you've made a lot of promises as a society to take care of the elderly, right? Pensions and, and social security and in a variety of names in a variety of countries, but you've got all of this promises. And those promises are important to a K gene set, but the promises are not important to the R gene set. And this is the fundamental mismatch that's occurring is that the, um, you know, the government every 20 odd years, 20 years and change, uh, spends as much money as it took over 200 years for the Ks to accumulate in the founding and growth of America. And I'm speaking very generally, of course, right? But um, the R's, they're not going to have, they don't have any particular loyalty to the elderly. So um, they just promise security to the elderly, which of course Ks don't really care about, rather save their own money. But R's know that they can't, they haven't invested enough in their kids, so their kids going to want to pay them back. So they want government security. But now you've got a whole bunch of R's and they're not really going to care that much about what happens to the old. And um, so with 1984, of course, you have a society where there's no quality. No quality is allowed. The only quality that is allowed is obedience and work. Uh, subjugation and work. And no personal levels of quality can be allowed. There is a terror and hostility towards success, particularly moral or intellectual success. There is a terror and hostility that the R's have towards success. Because when there's great disparity of success and failure, that is what feeds the K gene set, right? So the way it generally works in a free society is the exact opposite of how it works in a status society. In a free society, if you are very intelligent, if you work hard, if you save, and if those virtues are respected and, and treasured as they would be in a free society, then you have lots of kids, <laughs> right? And if you're irresponsible and, and, or lazy or just not that smart or whatever it is, then you're going to have fewer kids because more resources would accumulate to the more skilled and economically valuable people, which tends to correlate with uh, both innate and learned abilities and virtues, intelligence plus work, hard work, dedication, and so on. And we, you can contrast this by looking at something like Christianity versus Judaism. In Christianity, the very smartest people throughout most of Christendom were rendered infertile by the dictates of the Catholic Church. And so the smartest people, oh, you can learn Greek, you can learn Latin, you can, you know, recite the Mass, you can do all these cool, funky things, you really enjoy 
the writings of St. Augustine, well, uh, I'm afraid we're going to cock block your gene set from reproducing because we don't want church holdings to be diluted by the um, uh, by primogenitor, right? By, by the handing out of property to kids. So in Christendom, you have a dysgenic whirlpool, right? Like you take the smartest people and you put them into an environment where they can't breed. And then you take the biggest and most aggressive people, i.e. the warriors who became the aristocrats, and put them into a situation where they can breed more. And this is one of the reasons why um, you had these collective disasters that kept hitting Christendom, uh, which didn't hit the Jewish community as much, right? Like the plagues and so on disproportionately affected the peasantry and the Christians and the um, the Jews got away with it more because they had more money and they weren't in the, quote, sanitary system of the big cities and so on, and they lived in the country and were more isolated. Whereas in the, Ju- in the Judaism, in Judaism, you had the smartest people who went into um, becoming the, the religious leaders uh, in the Jewish community, the rabbis, who mastered a number of languages, who dealt with very difficult texts within the Torah and so on, and were highly and hugely respected within the community. And statistically, they had significantly more children than the uh, less skilled, less intelligent Jews. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews uh, in the, uh, the Ashkenazim Jews uh, are so smart. And it's one of the reasons theorized, and I think there's fairly good math behind it. So, um, and this is why we have, uh, this, we have this precious resource called intelligence as a species, and uh, it tends to get squandered. Uh, it's even worse than squandering capital, because capital is the effects of, of high intelligence. And so excellence and differentiation from the masses was highly respected and rewarded within the Jewish community, and not, in fact, it was punished. Genetically, it was, genetically, you might as well have just strangled these people in in the crib, right? The people who became priests in Christendom. They were good for spreading the meme called Christianity, for the mental ideas or the mental set called Christianity, but you might as well have uh, castrated them in the womb uh, as far as their reproductive powers went. Now, of course, some priests did step out a little (laughs) from time to time and, you know, squirt some forward momentum to the Euro Caucasian gene set, but uh, for the most part, it was a significant inhibitor. And even if they did have kids, a lot of times it was with mistresses where they couldn't give a lot of money to to them and so on. So uh, differentiations, great differentiations in ability are, um, boy, the, the greater the differentiations that society allows, the more reproductive ability is going to accumulate to the Ks, right? And this is why um, the, the R's want to flatten everything out and they want to take money from the K's and give it to the R's. Because when there's a higher mountaintop and valley, more resources are going to accumulate to the smarter, more sophisticated, harder working, more responsible people are going to end up with more resources. Now, of course, R's want resources for themselves, which is why they want a flat society where the government redistributes everything. Because not only does that give them more resources by the government taking from the K's and giving to the R's, but it means that women won't reject R's in favor of K's, right? If you have a free market society, everyone kind of gets rich and everyone kind of does well. But um, 
there's a really quite a staggering difference in a free society between the very intelligent and the average or the below average of intelligence or ability or hard work or whatever you want to call it, the, the X factor that produces wealth. Now, in a free society, uh, the women of the highest quality, uh, I, I don't just mean physical looks, but, you know, good moms and, and good uh, companions and good friends and so on. The women of the highest reproductive quality in a free society are going to want to get with the Ks because the Ks have the most resources in a free society. And so the Rs are disproportionately downgraded in a free society and the Ks are disproportionately upgraded. Now, in a uh, socialist or communist or welfare state society, the R gene set flourishes and the K gene set languishes or, or is, is slowly and steadily taken out of the gene pool. A gene pool, quite the opposite happens in a free market society. In a free market society, the Ks are disproportionately re rewarded and the Rs are taken away. So the fact in, the, uh, in 1984 and other dystopian novels, you see a predator called the state and you see a flat mass of undifferentiated human beings underneath them the sort of gray huddled masses. Um, it's a great poem. Uh, uh, people in the rain, like wet leaves on a bough or something like that. Just undifferentiated blobs. Uh, or like those, you know, I've said this, this metaphor before, in the background of Monet paintings, there are just little daubs of humanity. Just these blobs are supposed to be people in a, um, a stadium or something. It's blobs. And that's where the R's want to be. They want to be undifferentiated. They don't want to compete with those who have significantly greater ability. Because otherwise, the R gene set is really harmed and the K gene set is really rewarded. So they must provoke hatred against the Ks and they must promote an external predator that is perfect for the R gene set and absolutely unbearable for the K gene set. And uh, one of the th sort of little details that's hard to miss in 1984 is the fondness and conscience to some degree that Winston Smith uses to describe his relationship with his mother, that uh, there was a certain kindness around his mother, that he felt very guilty for taking a chocolate bar and, and eating it uh, during the war and so on. And uh, his, his conscience, uh, his, his positive relationship with his mother, I think was one of the foundations to his struggling K nature that was identified by the party that was identified by O'Brien. And, um, the, the, the terrifying scenes uh, where O'Brien is, is torturing Winston Smith. Uh, Winston Smith's great argument or great claim, his, his great hunger, his great desire, is he says freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. Individual consciousness is not allowed. Individual consciousness that goes against the masses is not allowed in the R gene set because it all struggles to reproduce itself by creating a lack of differentiation um, between, right? The R gene set, the, the, the fantastic R gene set is uh, a, a wall, you know, like they're called glory holes, I think. They're like holes in the walls with penises through them or whatever. You can have like a, a, a vagina pushed up against a hole in the wall. You have no idea who's on the other side. Could be old, could be young, could, right? That is the ultimate R factory. Whereas the K factory is <laughs> very fastidious and... Um, that's, you know, <laughs> glory hole versus bidding war. I, I don't know. That's what you need to look at. Now, and then the last thing I sort of want to mention, uh, just in terms of uh, where societies are, you know, Jews do very well, Christians uh, and, and uh, Caucasians do okay, and uh, the Muslims tend not to do so well, of course, 
And a lot of that has to do with um, the tradition within the Jewish community is to give the most breeding capacity to the, like the most resources and the greatest respect to those who are the most intelligent. In Christianity, uh, it was, that was specifically denied. But um, inbreeding in Middle Eastern cultures is catastrophically common. Uh, just here's a quote, uh, inbreeding or uh, consanguineous marriage is a common tradition practice in Middle Eastern cultures. Studies from various countries and communities of this region showed that the frequencies range from 20% to greater than 70%. Inbreeding is known to have adverse effects on morbidity and mortality. Serious total rate of consanguinity was found to be 35.4%. And, um, I mean, the number of health issues, and this also seems to have a negative effect on IQ as well, that um, uh, the, the, the more the mix within certain limits, the more the mix, the greater the progress uh, and of course, uh, cousin marriage or marriage within a particular community or arranged marriages, all of these are R-selected mating schemes because they all indicate a lack of willingness to compete. A lack of, oh, I'm going to marry my cousin. Oh, I'm going to marry whoever my parents tell me to. I don't want to go out there and compete. Everyone's the same. doesn't matter who I marry. And they found this actually even in birds. If you, uh, if you kind of force birds to get married, so to speak, and force them to have babies rather than let the birds choose each other, then the bird's parenting is actually much worse. Uh, and so this is one of the ways in which not only do you end up with generally less um, genetically flourishing offspring, but the parents of these kinds of situations tend, of these kind, tend to be worse because good parenting is virtue. And if you're not selecting based upon virtue, then, um, and the free market often selects based upon virtue, uh, but um, if in these marriages you're not selecting based upon virtue, you're going to end up with less genetically flourishing children and less quality parenting as a whole. It's kind of humiliating to be told who you're going to marry. And it takes a very um, a, a, a competition-averse mindset to want someone to find who you're going to marry or to marry within your, um, uh, your gene pool, so to speak. So uh, th- that's sort of my thoughts. So how, do they, how do they strike you? They sound very, very good. Um, the thing that I like that you touched on was the degree to which the society in 1984, the government, undermines the case, uh, case selection or case, case selected people or case selected mindset. Um, you know, to where they diminish individual thought, but they, they do it even to the extent that they destroy the language so that you can't even think. You know, they redefine words and they diminish words to the extent that someone who wants to think lacks the capacity. And I think that's really interesting when you look at how you can undermine a case-selected society or case-selected individuals within your society. There is, yeah. I mean, there is, um, that's a very, very good point. So for those who don't know, there's a, something called Newspeak in 1984 where they say, like, language is ridiculously inefficient. Like, you have good, better, excellent, fantastic, wonderful, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the argument is to say, well, no, let's just have good plus good for really good, double plus good for really good, uh, double minus good or whatever it is, right? So, so just you don't need all of this ridiculous language flourishes. You just want to simplify the language to the point even where words for 
unconventional or anti-authoritarian ideas simply are scrubbed from the language. It's not just a war against Ks. It includes the letter K or anti-K in the letter as well. And of course, it, it, what you were describing put to me, uh, put to my mind, um, Cyrano de Bergerac, right? There's a famous story where there's a very good looking guy who's, you know, thick as a brick. And Cyrano de Bergerac, who has this giant honking schnoz, right? Your nose was on time, but you were five minutes late. He has this big nose. And the, he, so the, the, the dumb, pretty guy wants to woo this woman. But he's, you know, she only responds to poetry, to beautiful language. And so the, the pretty guy stands under her window. And Cyrano de Bergerac, who's a master of language and very poetic and so on, he whispers to, to the dumb guy what to say. And then he, the dumb guy woos. And, the, of course, the woman thinks that uh, he's showing the K-selected aspect of great speech. But that's what actually Cyrano de Bergerac has. Yeah. And the, um, he only has the R-selected aspect of great physicality, physical beauty. And so it's a kind of an interesting thing how the R is masquerading as a K in order to get the quality uh, woman. And, of course, that is uh, not, uh, not that uncommon in literature. It's, it's, a, it's a trope or a cliche that's been used many, many times in literature. And um, in the K society... Uh, sorry, in, in the 1984 society, when you get rid of the complexity of language, again, you're reducing people's capacity to show their intelligence, right? When you get people to self-censor, you cripple their ability to show their intelligence. It is actually, for those who haven't tried it, one of the things that I do that I think is courageous is show unfettered intellectual power on a public stage. That is highly difficult for the R's to see, right? Really, really is provocative for R's to see unfettered, unapologetic, unpandering to R's intellectual power and eloquence in a public sphere. And the purpose of the, the restriction of language in 1984 is to make sure there are no poets and there, that everybody is the dumb guy in Cyrano de Bergerac and nobody is Cyrano de Bergerac. And um, that means that uh, because, of course, language skills... Uh, eloquence, uh, passion, and and uh, oratory uh, are all aspects of significant intelligence and therefore are a differentiator that, if allowed into the R world, would begin to get Ks to, uh, to accumulate more resources at the expense of Rs and so on. And so you see this, this thought crime uh, in, you know, you can't even think it. And the thought crime, of course, is old. It, it, Thought crime goes back, of course, to, to Christianity, particularly Catholicism, where the thought is the crime. If you look at another woman with lust in your eyes, uh, a hammering in your heart and uh, steroids in your balls, then you, you have committed the infidelity. The th thought is the crime. What this does is it makes people self-censor. And when you self-censor, you lower the quality of what you can bring to the world stage, which benefits the R's at the expense of the case. And so for me, uh, the challenge, uh, and, you know, I continually work with this within myself, uh, you know, the amount of training I do <laughs> to do what I do is prodigious, um, to, to make sure that I dismantle self-censorship, you know, in, in the controversial areas, we talk about female responsibility and race and statism and, and um, parenting and all that kind of stuff that I, um, dismantle self-censorship to let 
the K light shine, so to speak, and uh, provide a beacon for other people to say that you can flourish and do well in society by exercising your full intelligence, which is horrible to the R's, which is why they tend to react. Now, they can't compete with K's in intelligence, so all they have is venom, you know, and, and, and ugly things to say. And, you know, it's, it's really pathetic when you see it for what it is, but I guess they feel that it works, because on some people it does. And this is why you see in, um, on campuses, you see um, that uh, you, you're, you're not allowed to say anything, right? Thought crimes are all over the place in modern campuses because campuses have been swarmed by R's, and R's can't handle disagreements because disagreements mean win-lose, right? And win-lose means as soon as there's win-lose, their anti-competitive nature flares up. And so uh, you see this fairly continually. Sorry, you were going to say? Oh, it was just with, like, the safe zones and the trigger warnings and then what you have two that I notice, uh, particularly within um, modern feminism, is the redefining of words to the point where you can't have a conversation because you're talking past people because what I understand is racism and what the feminist understands as racism are two different things and I don't understand your definition because it's a floating target that you like to move and so the degree to which those themes are brought forward into actual modern day reality I find very intriguing. Right, right. So um, th- there's something where, you know, th- this check your privilege, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're launching into some passionate speech and then just throw bricks in front of your locomotive. Check your privilege, you know, which is uh, thought crime. <laughs> I mean, it's just supposed to trip you up because your motion is terrifying for them. Uh, when ours come in contact with real quality, the enemy is no longer the predator. Remember that the true enemy of the R is not the predator, it's the K among them. Because the R's need the predator. The R's need the predator in order to survive. Slaves need a master in order to reproduce with other slaves. And in the like, if you're a, if you're a slave of low quality, you really want there to be a master. This is the most fundamental thing to understand about R's and uh, modern society and society throughout history. If you're a low quality slave, you desperately need. A master, because a master will make everyone look like you. Everybody gets crushed down. Everybody is as flat as paint on a floor. And so the females have very little to choose between. I can choose this slave or I can choose this slave. And so the crushing of quality makes slavery preferable to low-quality people. You see, you're likely to get a slave mistress or a slave wife if everyone's a slave. There's no reason to reject you. You're just like everyone else. Plus, the master might even assign you. Hey, how about that? And remember, the genes don't care about choice. The genes only care about reproduction. However, if slavery ends tomorrow for the low-quality slaves... That means that the Ks will assert themselves almost immediately, will start gathering the resources, will start gathering the quality women, and they'd rather have an 80% chance of reproducing with another slave than a 20% chance reproducing with a free woman. Right? This is really, really fundamental to understand that dictatorship is a reproductive strategy for low-quality people. They want dictatorship. They want enslavement. They want the predation of the state that crushes 
the inequalities that would leave them genetically at a loss, that would leave them in the dust. And R versus K, again, it's complicated. I mean, there's R Christians, there's K Christians, there's R atheists, there's K atheists. So it's not any particular intellectual category, R Republicans, K Republicans. There are even K Democrats, all right? So, so it's, it's not, you can't sort of just drop people into these sorting mechanisms and so on. It's important, but these trends, I think, show up quite a bit. So when you start to talk about a free market, the reason that people freak out to the point where they're willing to literally go to the wall is that their genes are telling them, we have more chance reproducing in a dictatorship where quality is crushed down to nothing and there's no differentiation between us. We have more capacity. We have, we're going to have more success statistically reproducing in a dictatorship than we will reproducing in freedom. And this is one of the reasons why, we've talked a lot about immigration lately, one of the reasons why you get our selected groups going into K-selected countries, Middle East to Europe, and the R's are not used to competing for women because they've grown up in a dictatorship where all capacity and inequalities are crushed down. This is one of the reasons why there's a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and tragically, a lot of rape. Because the R strategy, to some degree, if you're in a K society, the R strategy survives by raping a K woman. Because they can't win them, and the genes want to reproduce, and the genes don't care if that reproduction is voluntary or involuntary. Ideally, it should be voluntary so that the resources get uh, invested for the male and the female into the child. But when you're faced with gene death, from a genetic standpoint, rape is a positive strategy. And so if you think, I mean, just, I don't know, I mean, where there's a real dictatorship, what benefit does a low-quality person have genetically to move to a free society where he does not have access to the higher-quality women anymore? Right? So even if he does, he's going to be a lower-quality woman which means, um, in general, the quality markers for a woman have to do with reproductive, reproductive genetic success or health. So he's going to have a, the, the genes are going to get access only to a lower quality woman. Whereas when everyone's flattened and everything's assigned, well, the R's do much better proportionally, and the K's do much worse. And it also struck me, of course, in 1984 that uh, Julia, the, the woman that uh, Winston Smith uh, he has this affair with. Uh, her job is to write pornography for the R's, right, for the, the proletariat. And um, that, of course, it, it, pornography is perfect because it perfectly stimulates the um, insatiable R sexual appetite, the insatiable R thirst for variety in sexual situations and so on. And um, that's uh, exactly as it should be uh, for the, for that society. So, yeah, it's important to remember that for the R slaves, their enemy is not the state. Their enemy is freedom. Their enemy is freedom. Because in freedom, they are deselected from the gene pool. In slavery, they are pro-selected 
for the gene pool. And so their genetics make them resist liberty far more than they would ever resist the state. And that is why the welfare dysgenics and a variety of other dysgenic situations within society have created a population that is genetically, fanatically invested upon the continuing enslavement of everyone around them. And this is why you can't reach them through reason. And if you look at um, other habits, um, in the West, um, women are free to put on sexual displays of quality. You know, that could be a bikini, or it could be a power suit, or it could be an Hermes handbag, or a Louis Vuitton suitcase. They are free to put on displays of quality. Whereas, of course, in the Middle East and in other cultures, women are not allowed to put on any displays of quality because the men don't want competition, right? Competition-averse reproduction is essential to our based societies. So men don't want other men to know how attractive their women are or not. Everyone's got to be this big blob. So I think, I think that's as much as I sort of have to add to that aspect of things. Has that been relatively helpful? It has. Um, I'm curious. I have two questions, and they're kind of disparate in nature. One is the role to which the constant surveillance of Big Brother plays in regulating the society. And then the other is, what do you think the gene motivation is for those that are in charge of the government? those that are running it? Do you think they are K-selected, R-selected, or just insane? <laughs> well, the first is that uh, the, the, the constant surveillance is... Um, the co- constant surveillance is foundational to the R-gene set because the R-gene set is common to prey species, right? And, and what are prey species doing all the time is scanning for danger. Right, so to the degree to which people lose privacy, that is exactly the degree to which you stimulate the growth and spread of the R gene set. When people feel like they're always being watched, um, and this is as true in North Korea as it is in 1984, as it is in the celestial overlord of a lot of deities, always watching you, always potentially about to strike you down, always about to punish you, right? Danger and and death are omnipresent. You must keep your wits and guard about you. And if you can't find an external threat, then you can turn to thought crime and monitor yourself. So the predator-prey relationship exists within the R gene set. There is a wolf far more common in the mind of the rabbit than in the field of rabbits. Because, of course, in the anticipation of the wolf coming into the field of rabbits, the rabbits always have to be thinking about the possibility of predation. That's why they're always darting around. That's why they're always popping their heads up. And, right, you see these nature films where the, um, the prairie dogs or the gophers pop their heads up and dart from place to place. They're always thinking about being watched and being aggressed against. And so when you come up with a society where people feel watched and in danger at all times, well, that's perfect for the R gene set because that stimulates a high sex drive, that stimulates uh, early sexual activity, uh, that stimulates all that kind of good stuff that uh, provokes the uh, the R gene set. So I think the big brother is watching you. 
I think that is uh, the cold eye of Sauron kind of thing that uh, is, uh, you know, this is why, you know, this is sort of fundamental why K people, they go insane when they hear about things like the NSA, right? The NSA is, is, is spying on everyone. It's terrifying to the Ks. It's appalling to the Ks. But the R's are like, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> But the R's but, go it, further. It, it, they say the R's are like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to fear. Right, and that is a total fuck you to the case, right? Yeah. But, um, the like, I'm, in a very fundamental way. I mean, <laughs> let's get really down and gritty in this topic, right? R's fuck to martial marching band music. R's are turned on. By policemen watching them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's true because all of the situations that set up a feeling of being preyed upon is a giant turn on to the R's. Oh, they like it when you watch. <laughs> as long as you have some power over them, it can do them harm. And so, you know, was it five plus million fingerprints just got stolen from United States government servers and Massive numbers of files get stolen and, and like they love this stuff. It's hot for them. <laughs> it's sexy to them in a very literal way. I'm not, oh, it's hot. Literally, a police baton is the R's dildo. <laughs> it is. Marching band music and watching those guys all marching in formation like a bunch of scissors or the hammers in Pink Floyd's The Wall marching, like the, the uniforms, like, God, I tell you, the Nuremberg rally was a giant finger yourself till your head explodes orgy for blonde-headed, R-selected German women. Oh, oh. I mean, they probably had spontaneous orgasms to Hitler screaming. Because that provokes such wild sexuality that be, being preyed on means you got to have sex. Wolves being around means let's fuck now because we might be dead tomorrow. That fin de sequel, that end of the century, that end times, whatever provokes the end times, drives the sexual hunger of the R selected. This is why they pour into rallies. This is why they get that collective orgy shit going on, whether it's, uh, you know, people rutting like a bunch of stuck pigs uh, at an Occupy Wall Street rally or out there at Burning Man or, or out there at Woodstock, you know, like whatever is going to erase identity and create a sense of danger uh, is fantastic for the sex drive of the R's. Is that similar to where the theme of constant war comes into play? Well, certainly, if there's constant war, then you are provoking the R gene set, for sure. Which is why you can see from the 1960s onwards, as the R gene set has begun to take over, begun to take over, there is constant war. I mean, America's been in so many wars, it's ridiculous. But even America, it's become constant war. It's become constant war. And it's a turn-on. Literally, it is, it is an aphrodisiac for the R gene set to be watched, to be in danger, and to be preyed upon. And which is why if you take away danger, 
you take away the sex drive of the Rs, if you take away being preyed upon, if you take away fear, anxiety, right? Then it, it removes their, their sex drive. And I've certainly noticed, I've noticed this from when I was young. I mean, socialist chicks. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Easy and unsatisfying lays are left of center. <laughs> Turn to the left. Let me spin you like a rotisserie. Uh, and um, that, that sort of, the sex drive in, in the face of danger uh, is, you know, the thrill seekers, the thrill junkies and so on. It's really, it's a very powerful thing for these people. And um, the, the opposite of danger is depression, right? I mean, the R's are generally more depressed than the K's. And so they need the stimulation of danger to get through the day. But uh, statism is their Viagra. You know, a, a flag going up to some degree, not, not the patriotism, noble fight for your in-group K stuff, but the size and power of the state, the worship of pomp and circumstance, the veneration of the cult of the personality. All of that danger, predation, affects the R-selected mindset, like sticking your hand up their ass and tickling their prostate just before they come. <laughs> it's like the last few seconds of Michael Hutchins, right? I mean, it's like strangle, de strangle to death to get a better orgasm. That's pure R-selection. Michael Hutchins, singer for In Excess, just another way in which dating a single mother could be fatal. He had an affair with Bob Geldof's wife, and they got involved in all this messy legal stuff. And anyway, so... Those, those are sort of my thoughts. Uh, I'd like to move on to the next caller, if you don't mind, but that's stuff to, to chew over and mull on, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Thanks for letting me ramble. I appreciate that. Uh, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> Anytime. Thanks for uh, going over all that stuff with me. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Ross. Well, up next, we have a couple, Matthew and Christina. Um, they wrote in and said, the devastating repercussions on children raised in single-parent households is indisputable. However, what do you think the advantages and disadvantages are of having more than two parents involved with the raising of a child? Can quality and quantity exist together in the realm of love? Can you explain why you think people who are case-selected are, by definition, monogamous? That's from Matthew and Christina. Hey, how you guys doing? Well, thanks. Hi. And can hi, you guys can both hear off and be mm -hmm. Okay. So just to lay this out for me, <laughs> what kind of scenario are we talking about? Polygamy? What uh, what are we divorce and step parents and what are we talking here? Well, everything is I, I would say theoretical. Um, but All right, then why is it theoretical for you guys? Because um, you can deal with any particular topic. There's usually a reason we have an interest in something rather than something else. Well, because uh, I guess, well, it's it's more Christina who has expressed interest in, um, I guess, poly relationships, but not necessarily. Polyamory. Yeah, in polyamory. Okay. So, Christina. How you doing? Hi. Hi. So what are your, your thoughts is that you'd like to, 
be with Matthew, but have the option to be with uh, other men, women, farm animals. Not sure what I'm doing. Um, right. Yeah. Just, just that, that w- why does being in one committed relationship need to restrict me from other relationships? Uh, so what you're saying is that Matthew might not be enough for you. Um, in a way, yes. Well, I mean, if if I've just had the best meal I can have, I'm not sitting there saying, I want to go to another restaurant, right? Well, the next day, yeah, you, you, you probably don't want to eat the same thing. Okay. So when it comes, and you're really talking about sexual activity here, right? Well, I mean, emotional intimacy or physical intimacy. Well, emotional intimacy is not necessarily polyamory, right? I mean, you can be friends with other people and and share emotional intimacy with them. That's not the same. It comes down to sexuality because generally relationships, uh, love relationships are around the regulation of sexuality because of the potential for creating children, right? Right. So emotional intimacy, you know, (laughs) I don't care how intimate you are, you ain't getting anyone pregnant through words alone, right? And so I think we're just in this particular context, I don't think Matthew would say you can't have any friends (laughs) outside the relationship, right? That would be pretty unhealthy. But I would assume that there may be some difference of opinion on who gets access to your hoo-hoo, right? Sure, yeah. I think I said that right, hoo-hoo. Is that, I'm, I think that's Latin. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, I, so, think, I think there's two different kinds of bonds, and I wouldn't necessarily say that all um, pair bonds have to be sexual, right? You can have social pair bonds. What? That, that's what do you mean social pair bonds? <laughs> like you only have one friend and you can't, that friend, other friend can't friend other people? I think, well, more, more just friends who are really close. And, and the conversation that I wanted to have was sort of... A, well, no, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think you just... I was having a conversation with, with Christina and I think you just kind of fogged in there. <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about now. No, you can... Not have pair bonding in friendships, right? Because you can have a friend, but no good friend will ever say to you, you can't see, have other friends, right? True. Okay, so forget about friendship. We're talking about sexual access. That is where monogamy tends to show up. Is that, can we at least agree on that part? Well, yes, but your, your relationship with your partner is much, much more than just sex. I get that, but sex is the one thing that differentiates it from what you can do with other people. Sure. Right? You can be friends with other people, you can go to dinner with other people, you can go to see movies with other people, you can go play tennis with other people, you just can't bang them senseless, right? That's the, that's the one thing that monogamy is defined by. It's monogamy of naughty parts. It's a monopoly of squishy bits. Uh, it's, it's, it's about sex. And again, I'm not trying to say that a love relationship is only about sex, But a love relationship, a pair-bonded relationship, fundamentally is defined by a monopoly on sexual activity because uh, everything else is fine, right? You know, friends and dates, I mean, sorry, friends and and not dates, but friends and and dinners and and movies and go bowling, (laughs) you can go rock climbing. None of that is a violation of monogamy. Sex outside the relationship, that's the very definition of the violation of monogamy. Right, and so why is that a bad thing? 
well, what do you mean by a bad thing? It's not evil, right? So, so if if I have a, a, a relationship with my wife, someone goes and has like one of us goes and has an affair. That's not something you can shoot someone for. It's not evil. It's not the initiation of force, right? Right. But if you make the commitment to be monogamistic, right? If you make the commitment to, you know, circle around the squishy parts and, and keep all others at bay, then that's a promise, right? That's a commitment. And, and of course, in, in a marriage, um, the sexual monopoly is basically the vow, right? And so if you make a promise to someone and you break that promise, that's not evil. It's aesthetically negative behavior in the parents that we talk about here, but it's not evil. So I just want to, it's wrong. Well, if you make a promise to be monogamous and you break that promise, then you've lied to someone about something very fundamental. And if you go out and have sex with someone else after promising to be faithful to, to Christina, let's say you go out and have sex with some woman, and then you don't tell her about it, well, of course, you could be bringing home an STD. You could also be bringing home another STD called psycho crazy woman might want to stalk you or something like that. Hey, I don't remember slashing my own tires. Hey, where's my bunny, right? So, so if you make a promise to, to be faithful to someone and you go out and have sex with someone else, bad enough, you come home and tell them, well, okay, you deal with that. But if you don't tell them, then a lot of other messy complications uh, can occur. And then you're in a situation of continual lying to someone, to falsifying their existence, to falsifying your experience uh, something that's always on your mind is something you can never talk about with the other person. You have to pretend to be intimate. She's going to sense that something's wrong. She's going to ask you what's wrong. You're going to say, nothing's wrong. I'm just tired. It's been a tough day at work. I've got uh, gout. You know, whatever it is you're going to make up. And so you are going to be continually lying to someone when the foundation of any intimate relationship must be honesty. So you've broken a vow. If you've had an affair, you're coming home and you're continuing minute by minute to break that vow by continuing to lie and obscure information against someone. So that's really bad. Okay, well, so th that wasn't exactly the question. The question does not have to do with breaking a commitment to monogamy. The question has to do with entering into a relationship where it, it's not exclusive. You're, you're, not bound, you're not committing yourself to exclusivity. Right, so if you go ahead of time and you say, I'm going to have sex with you and I'm going to have sex with other people, Right, then, then that's then you're not lying when you go and have sex with other people, right? Right, right, right. It's sort of like lending out your car, <laughs> lend out your car, and whatever. Right? I'm not using my I'm not using my vagina tonight, so yeah, you can go off and dip your wick uh, somewhere else, right? Right, yeah. I think we all agree that um, dishonesty in a relationship is is killer. That's it's just going to destroy the relationship, and so. And do you guys want to have kids, do you think? Yeah, we've talked about that, and we do. Right, okay. And so, if you're, of course, if you're having sex with multiple partners when you want to have kids, you, of course, in the past, when all this stuff evolved, one of the reasons it evolved is that um, there were no DNA tests, right? So um, one of the problems of multiple partners during the evolution of human romantic commitment was if you're having sex with a bunch of people, you can't ever find the guy who knows it's his kid. 
And, and so uh, one, you understand that fundamentally, a woman always knows the kid is hers. This comes out of an old Strindberg play. But fundamentally, a woman knows always genetically that the kid is hers. A man doesn't know for sure that the, 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 the kid is his, right? And, but men, of course, want to pass along their genes just as much as women do. But women automatically are passing along their genes by being pregnant. But men have to be very careful to make sure that they're not being cuckooed, right? Or cuckolded. Right, which is it comes from the old right. The, the cuckoo used to lay its egg in another bird's nest, and the other birds would end up raising the move on. So, if you invest twenty or twenty-five years of your life as a man into a child that is not yours, that is catastrophic genetically, right? And of course, genetic preference for close kin is the foundation of evolution. It's why we have big brains. It's why we have this conversation. It's all these things, right? So. If you uh, are a man and have any preference for yourself, then you want your child to be half yours. And to do that, you need to have a commitment from the woman to forsake all others. And the woman needs to earn that commitment and she needs to uh, embody that commitment so that if the kid comes out, as it will sometimes happen, not looking much like you, (laughs) you know, just you know, it's your kid, it's just, you know, genetic chance, then you you trust and know that woman enough to know that the next 20-year investment you have in raising that kid is raising your kid, right? And uh, so, so that's why it evolved. I'm sure you can sort of understand that, that genetically, the men who did not ensure that the kids they were raising with their own kids, those genes, those preferences died out, right? Because you'd be pouring your effort into raising another person's genetic material rather than promoting the success of your own genetic material. So men who rejected monogamy in the past would die out. Now, women who rejected monogamy would also face significant barriers to reproductive success. Because if you don't have monogamy from a man, a woman generally, before birth control, right, when all this stuff evolved, a woman generally would spend the vast majority of her time from 14 to 40 either being pregnant, recovering from pregnancy, breastfeeding, or being pregnant again. (laughs) There's a pattern here. I'm trying to figure out what it is, right? Now, this requires 20 or 30 years of massive resources investment from a man, right? Because she's kind of (laughs) busy with 12 kids and and breastfeeding and and diapers and cooking and cleaning and diapers. And I think I may have mentioned something about diapers, right? So she needs the man to go out there and get her a big giant house. And she needs the man to go out and bring home 10 times the amount of food that he needs to eat for himself. And so she needs the commitment from the man. And so women who were not monogamous would generally tend to produce kids that no individual man had much investment in. And that's why men and women would date, would get engaged, would get married, and then would be monogamous because that gave each individual's genetic material the best chance of surviving and flourishing. And those people who turned away from monogamy ended up being weeded out of the gene pool over time, not permanently and not for everyone and not forever, of course, because nothing play- nature is nothing if not playful. But that's sort of the fun. So if, if you want to have kids, I guarantee you that the vast likelihood is that if you are not monogamous and if you, Matthew, end up with Christina getting pregnant by some other guy's kids, then your commitment to the protection of that child 
will be vastly diminished much to the detriment of that child. Well, I, you know, I don't think that it's fair to equate uh, um, monogamy or equate non-monogamy with a lack of commitment, right? You can still be committed to someone and you can be committed to multiple people, right? Well, but when you, 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 it's like I didn't even speak earlier. We're not talking about something as nebulous as commitment. I'm committed to my cell phone plan because they won't let me out, right? But so what? I can go well, buy another cell phone you're and be nobody less takes me to, to court. The kid, right? Well, no, but you said you can be committed to multiple people, but that's not, we're not talking about something as nebulous and open-ended as the term commitment. But statistically, the best person to protect and nourish a child is the biological parent. And we see this because when stepfathers or unrelated boyfriends come floating through children's lives, they are 30 to 32 times more likely to be abused by non-biological relatives or non-biologically non related people, right? They are incredibly in danger. Is that because the, case the for... taboos against incest, so for sexual abuse, the taboos against incest aren't there. And the biological investment isn't there. And, of course, you know, the great cry of stepchildren when the stepparent or the stepdad tries to tell her, tell them what to do. You're not my dad. You can't tell me what to do. Well, kind of a bit of truth in that, right? And so the, the relationships in general, and lots of exceptions, right? But the relationships, the quality of the relationships statistically are the very highest between biological parent and offspring, right? Directly related, half you, half me. That is the best environment statistically for uh, the children. And it would be crazy if it wasn't. Like evolution would make no sense if people had no preference for more closely related genetic material. Well, I do think that there's a biological preference. And you, you see that in just the way that kids gravitate to their parents, right? They're they want to imitate their parents, but um, that that doesn't really have anything to do with philosophical raising of children. And um, I don't know what I, I sorry I don't know what that means. Uh, well, you're always telling people that you go beyond the biology. You know, it, it shouldn't just matter that this person is related to you blood in blood it should be wait sorry about, what have i what have i told people to go beyond the biology i, I don't talk yourself out of being hungry i don't i don't ever making i mean maybe i did i just don't remember oh, making just, those arguments. i'm talking about uh the uh, no no unchosen obligations uh that that sort of thing like no that's that's nothing to do with this because having a child is a chosen obligation. And the choice to be monogamous or not is a chosen obligation. So you're really grasping at straws here. And is that because you want to be able to have sex with people other than Christina? Or Christina wants to have sex with people other than you? Or is it both? Well, I actually don't want to have sex with anyone else. But... Christina I... is the wandering spirit. So let's get back to her. And you need to not, uh, not talk for a bit, <laughs> if that's all right. Okay, Christina, are you there? Yes, <clears throat> yes. All right. But, but I will say uh, I'm interested. No, 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 no,
All right, time to talk to Christina. Manage your anxiety without me. All right. Um, so, Christina, what is it that you want in another sexual relationship that you wouldn't get from Matthew? Well, it, it, it's more just, it's not like like at, at the moment I'm interested in pursuing other people, but I can, it's something I, I foresee in the future as a possibility that I'll meet someone <clears throat> who could be a beneficial, you know, person to have in my life and to be close with, who I would want to no, have a relationship no, with. No, 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 come on. We're talking about sex. This, this, like, let's, right, let's talk about with, what it is. To have sex with, sure. Right? Like, we're talking about okay. eating and you're talking about the decor, right? We're talking about sex. You want to have sex with other men, not have people in your life. Because I'm right. sure Matthew wouldn't ever say, you can't ever talk to anyone with a penis, even at a funeral, even if they're in the casket. Sorry, penis, no eulogies for guys, right? He's going to, I mean, you're going to have to be friends with men, right? So we're talking about sexual appetite that in the future, you would like to have other men have sex with you other than Matthew, right? Yes, possibly. And I want to leave the relationship open to that possibility. And... I don't see any downsides to that as long as I set the same standards for other partners that I do for my primary partner. What are those standards? Someone who will be committed and... Well, committed? Wait, wait, hang on. Uh, <laughs> hang on. The whole reason you're in a relationship, sexual relationship with someone else is because you're not primarily committed to, right? You're not found fundamentally committed to Matthew. So I don't see how commitment can No, that's not true. Be. That's not true. Just because I'm committed to... Someone else is, I can't, like, I can be committed to more than one person. Okay, but then you need to explain to me what the word committed means then. Meaning not. Like, I'm committed to, to I'm committed to this conversation, which means I'm not hang gliding at the same time. Meaning, right? If, if you're doing, trying to do two jobs at the same time, you, you, you're not as committed to one job, right? If you're fully focused on one task, you're committed to that task. If you interrupt that task to do something else, you're no longer committed to the first task, Right. So just help me understand what you mean by the word commitment. I mean, I'm entirely, it's entirely possible I have no clue what I'm talking about and I'm really misunderstanding something, so I'm, I'm willing to be schooled. Well, for, for example, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly how I would want it to work out, but like polyamorous parents who all live together in the same house, right? It's a long-term, lifelong, committed relationship, meaning you're not planning to abandon that person. You're planning to maintain contact and keep up the relationship right there's no reason that has to be exclusive to one person no no but <laughs> first of all i don't know what planning to abandon means but you are certainly planning you you're planning for the possibility of falling in love with someone else right i mean if you're going out right. and having sexual right. relationships so, with other the people then you might fall in, in love, love with those other people doesn't mean i fall out of love with matt Okay, so l let me just sort of make sure I understand this. So let's say that you and Matt have been together for five years or 10 years or whatever, and you have two children and you love Matt, right? Right. Okay, so then you want to go and have sex with another guy. Mm -hmm. Now, it can't be because you love that guy more than Matt, because you know him less than Matt, right? Because you're new to that relationship, right? Sure, I, I don't know if you can measure love like that. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. So, for instance, uh, I've known my wife for like 13 or 14 years. Now, let's say I meet a woman and a week later I say, I love her more than my wife, right? Okay, that, no, that wouldn't make sense, but that doesn't mean you can't love this other woman. 
Well, no, I didn't say he couldn't love. What I'm saying is that, well, first of all, you can't fall in love in two weeks. So that's, that's just lust, right? But um, if you, let's say that you, you're with Matt and you love Matt like 95%, right? Now, would you say that the quality of sex is related to the amount of affection or love? I can't say I know. I don't know. Uh, what? Sure. Do probably. you love Matt now? Yes. Do you think that sex, if you had the choice, okay, let's, let's go to the extremes. If you had the choice to have sex with someone you love or someone you hate, which would you choose? Love, obviously. Okay, yeah, okay. I think you're right. Hang on. If you had the choice to, to have sex with someone you loved 95% or someone you loved 10%, which would you choose? You don't have to choose. If you know, just, you know, we've, we've got some thought exercises going here, right? If you, had the, so if you had the choice to have sex with someone you loved more or someone that you loved less, which would you choose? Well, it depends because if I have sex with the, some, with the person I love more every day, then maybe I want to mix it up. So you want to have sex with someone you love less because you know that person a lot less uh, time. So you find that person perhaps more physically attractive, but you don't love the person as a person as much as you love Matthew because you don't know the person that long. Possibly, but that doesn't mean they don't have other qualities that are great. Like, it doesn't mean I can't grow to love them as much as I love him. There's potential. But those qualities would have to be qualities not present in Matt. So let's say Matt is 100% honest with you, right? So somebody else who you, and that Matt has been honest with you for 10 years straight, right? You can't meet someone who's going to have more of the virtue called honesty than Matthew, right? Well, so, so there's the core virtues, and I would, I would expect them to have the same core, core virtues that I would require in anyone. Um, but and what other would those qualities, core virtues be? What? And what would those core virtues be? Well, um, honesty, self-awareness, you know, self-knowledge, um, things like that. Are, are you saying that... No, no, Matt, no, no, hang on. Still chatting with Christina. Don't make me tase you, bro. Okay, honesty, we've got self-knowledge. Okay, what else? Um, well, compassion, empathy, uh, Things like that. Compassion. Okay. Uh, empathy. Anything else? Curiosity. Ambition. That's uh, not really a virtue. Okay. You can be curious about bomb making, right? <laughs> but what else? Um, I, I can't think of anything else. I, I, I'm sure there's more. I guess I don't know how to articulate okay. them. So that's fine. So you've known, um, I mean, these are all largely female virtues if you don't mind me saying so compassion empathy moral courage bravery you know these you don't have the dude stuff but that's okay i mean you're not dude enabled so you know that's fine but uh, so when it comes to if you've known matthew for 10 years then you and he's got 100 percent honesty 100 percent compassion 100 percent empathy he's gentle with your kids he's gentle with you he's a great guy all of the virtues there right well those are proven and tried and tested virtues 
Now, when you meet somebody new, somebody could be faking those virtues. They might have them inconsistently. They might have them while they're on their meds. They might only have them when they've got a low buzz of alcohol on. They could, any number of things could happen, right? They could be faking. Right? That's assuming that I am not perceptive enough to, to see that. Well, sure. I mean, of course, by definition, right? It's not fraud if you could see it. I get it, right? But, but people do fool other people, right? I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of people. Well, right. Women so the in fact that you can who, fool me doesn't right? mean that that it's not worth it. Doesn't mean I can't take the time to see through that. Obviously, it wouldn't be something to rush into. But that that that's no argument that it, it wouldn't. There wouldn't be something there that's worthwhile in pursuing. You know. Well, no, because if if Matthew has these virtues that have been proven over ten years to be a hundred percent, then whoever you meet is going to have less of these virtues. By definition, right? Less that I know about. That doesn't mean they don't have the same virtues that he has. Right. But if sex is better because of virtue and Matt already has the proven virtues, then by definition, sex is going to be better with Matt than with some new person. I guess I would, I don't, I don't know if, 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 like, the, the amount of time that you know somebody is the only thing that factors into the quality of the sex. Um, I also think... No, 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 because, no, come on. I didn't say the amount of time you know someone. What I'm saying is, if you've had 10 years of seeing Matt display wonderful virtues, and you have 10 years of experience knowing what each other likes sexually, like, whoa, wrong hole. <laughs> I mean, that's not maybe what you want, right? And so... If you have 10 years of proven virtue and you have 10 years of established love and you have 10 years of experience experimenting and knowing what feels best for the other person, then help me understand how sex with a stranger who doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have any experience in what you want and who certainly cannot match in your experience, the proven virtues of 10 years of Matt's moral excellence, how can that sex be better? How could that be something that you would want from somebody else? Okay, number one, there can be a value to novelty. Um, but you can get novelty two, with that. Well, no, not not necessarily. But it also, it, it, it's not like, it's not usual excuse. It's, it's, not, it's not a zero-sum game, right? Like, it doesn't have to be either one or the other. There's no reason for that. I'm sorry. I don't know what that means. Like, it, it's not like having sex with someone else is going to detract from my relationship with Matt, right? It's not like, it's not like they have to compete between each other because I can do both. I don't have to compare the two. I can say, well, this one person has, has virtues and values and I want to be intimate with this person. And so does Matt, obviously, but that doesn't mean I can't get close to some other person and have sex with them. All right. So, Matt, sorry to put you on the sidelines for a moment. Can we just drag you back in for a sec? Uh, sure. Okay. So you, uh, let's say you are married to or committed to Christina, and um, she's been just with you for, for 10 years, and you have children together, you have a life together, and, and so on. And then she sort of sits down and says, you know, well, I, I met a guy online. I'm going out to have sex with him tonight. Um, how do you feel? That would seem, uh, that would seem pretty premature to me. 
Um, I would feel anxiety, some uneasiness, um, and I'd want to know why she's doing that. It would not be something you would welcome, right? Well, if we... Come on. Look, dude, just pretend it's you and me talking. Let's pretend we're in a locker room that smells vaguely of mildew and man juice, right? You and I talking man to man. The woman you love, the mother of your children, says that she wants to go out and ride some other dude. What are your thoughts? Do you say, wow, I can't wait. (laughs) Yay. Can you film it? Right? I mean, seriously. The the sex part doesn't make me feel good, but... Uh, well, what does it make you feel? If it's, what is, what if are your feelings for, about this? I mean, if it's for the sake of my children. What? <laughs> what? Where do the children come into this? I, I think children are everything when it comes... I mean, they're, they're the no, whole... No, but what, what, does, what, did, ah, what does Christina going and having sex with another guy have to do with... For your kids? Well, Go bang a stranger for the kids, honey. Because he could be a second dad. Why would he want to be a second dad? Well, I, I think because people are determined solely by their their evolutionary instincts. There's more to people well, than that, and sometimes they want to join a family that not just because it's their genes that are passed on. Maybe they want to join us. Maybe we want to be poly parents. Maybe yeah, we all want to say, live together. Not, not everyone wants to have their own kids. Um, some people just want to, um, be, take more of a periphery role, right? Um, you mean sort of be a, a half parent, like, like in the attic or the basement or like a shed in the backyard, like maybe live in the car in the garage or, um, something like that? Uh, well, I think this gets to another issue, which is that. No, let's get back to how you felt when she said she wanted to go have sex with another man. I'm sure I would feel jealousy. So it would be a negative experience for you, right? Yeah. Okay. And the reason I'm saying for that is that Christina said that it would have no negative effects, right? Now, empathy was a virtue for her, or compassion and empathy So, Christina, I would submit that if compassion and empathy are a value for you, and it would make Matthew feel bad for you to go and have sex with another guy, then you should act on your values of compassion and empathy and not do it. Or, if you go to the other guy, and you'll only have sex with him if he's virtuous, and he has compassion and empathy, and you also have honesty as your standard, and you go to this other guy and say, well, I'd really like to have sex with you, then the other guy, but I'm married... Then the other guy would say, well, how does your husband feel about this? And you, because you value honesty, would say, he feels pretty bad about this. In fact, I think he feels terrible, and we don't know what's going to happen from here. (laughs) Well, I think we would talk about it. Hang on. The guy who has, hang on, the guy who has honesty and self-knowledge and compassion and empathy will say, I don't want to have sex with you if it's going to make your husband feel bad. Okay, well, that's quite obvious, but... um, the, the reason Matt and I have started discussing this now, even though it's not a potential, it's not, it's not going to happen anytime in the near future, is because we're, we're trying to work through those feelings together. And just because he feels negatively about it now doesn't mean that's not going to change. So obviously, I know I would not do something like that 
until Matt and I had discussed it extensively and made sure we were both okay with it. Right, maybe the guy has to go on a date with both of us. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't even know what planet I'm on. Okay. Um, (laughs) All right. We need to (laughs) circle back a little bit here. So as long as Matt was uncomfortable with it, you wouldn't do it? No, I would not. Okay. Okay. So, Matt, then you would have to be honest and say, unless I'm perfectly okay with it, in fact, happy, right? You can't be neutral about something like this, right? Because there's a huge risk involved. Because if she goes out and she finds some guy who rocks her world, blows her socks off, and she has orgasms that put her into low orbit, that's going to have some destabilizing effect on your relationship because she's going to be really drawn to that guy. That's going to interfere with uh, her availability as a wife and a mother and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So this is a destabilizing event for sure. Either the relationship with the other man is going to be worse than her relationship with you or not as good, in which case why bother, right? I mean, that's like saying, well, I've, I've used this courier company for 10 years. They've delivered every single time on time. But now there's some new courier company that opened up across town. I'm just going to go try them. It's like, well, if you have something that, that works and is stable, why would you why would, right? why would you want to go Because you can have both. Too? You don't have to choose between one or the other. No, but if the courier company is already delivering everything that you want on time at the price you want, why would you want well, some other courier company? I mean, he, he can't. He can't do, like, absolutely everything. What do you mean everything? There are certain things that... (laughs) Does he draw the line at goats? I mean, (laughs) what does that mean, everything? I mean, there there are certain qualities that he doesn't possess that other people will possess. And what are those qualities? I I mean, they're they're not necessarily the core values, but they're just other things. Abs? What do you... I don't know what that... What are you talking about here? Um... Things like just certain shared interests or things like that. No, no. Shared interests you get with friends. You do not have to bring vagina to the shared interest party. Or, or just just a different personality, you know? Okay, but you're not saying anything. What is it that you would want to have sex with another guy for that you're not getting from Matt? Well, I mean, I, I don't exactly know, but just just a different personality, different character traits to bring to but you're just using the word different it doesn't mean anything right and i i i know exactly what's going on here if you want me to tell you i mean i can tell you what's going on what do you think is going on oh i know what's going on i know what's going on um okay go ahead have you ever listened to adele the singer the singer just a yeah. couple. You probably heard her on the radio. You, you, like you can't get her. She's like a, a sky virus. You can't escape, right? Although she's a good singer. Anyway. So have you ever heard of the phrase hypergamy? I believe no. so. All right. Maybe. Hypergamy is a woman's desire to get the highest quality mate that she can possibly get. And it's perfectly natural and it's perfectly healthy. Right? Like, a man, in general, wants to get the most fertile and attractive woman that he can get. 
And a woman in general wants to get the most successful, whatever that means, can be a variety of things. You want to get the best that you can. Nothing wrong with it. Like everyone wants to get the best job they can possibly get. Everyone wants to get the best pay that they can possibly get. Everyone wants to get the best car that they can possibly get. But of course, we all have to uh, make compromises, right? Not everyone can get everything that they want. I mean, you know, everything's finite, right? We get the best person that we can get based upon who we are at the time, right? Right. So, uh, so Christina, I'm going to assume that Matthew is the best guy that you can date at the moment. Yes. Because if there was another guy who was better who wanted to date you and you genuinely believe that person was better for you, you'd be dating that person, right? Right. Right. Now, the problem with dating when kids are going to be involved is this. A man, when looking at a woman, can judge her fertility quite easily, right? Young healthy, shiny hair, you know, hip-to-waist ratio, all, all of the markers that are generally, con- even features, like all the markers that are generally considered physically attractive are all the markers for fertility and good genetic health, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible, of course, some entrometriosis, uh, premature ovarian failure, could be any number of things that might cause infertility on the part of the woman, but the man has to take a bit of a gamble, but he has some particular clue that she's not 80, right? And he's not going to be trying to squeeze children out of a crypt keeper or something, right? Now, a woman, though, I assume you guys, you sound fairly young, right? Is that right? Yeah, 20s. <clears throat> 20s, okay, perfect. Good, then I'm, I'm still potentially right. <laughs> so a woman, Matt, I'm going to assume you're not fantastically wealthy, right? Well, uh, actually, no. Um. <laughs> Damn, don't say it, man. Because <laughs> if you were, if you were fantastically wealthy, then my thesis would evaporate. But anyway, if so, so, but you have potential, right? You're not like a mouth breeding guy who can't find. I like find to think so. Suits. Yeah, you've got potential, right? You, you've got smarts. You've got some desire for learning. You've got some, you know, potential, right? So a man has to. Choose a woman who's fertile, but a woman has to choose a man who has potential. Because by the time a woman has invested sort of two or three or four years or five years into a relationship with a man, her fertility is starting to fade, or at least beginning to, or at least the value of it is beginning to fade. And she has to invest into a man a lot before she finds out whether he's going to provide enough resources for her to raise her kids. Right, Because Matt's income, hopefully, is going to go up over time. But, of course, Christina, your sexual market value is going to go down over time, right? So, So, Christina, what's going on here is that you're basically saying, well, Matt, what if a guy comes along who can give me more resources than you? And by resources, I'm not just talking money. It can can be any number of things, right? But a woman has to find a man to commit to. And a woman who thinks she might be able to do better wants to leave the door ajar a little bit. 
right? You, you've heard of this friend zoning, right? That the woman keeps a friend zone, friend zoned guy around just in case. So you know those old things where guys and men, men and women in movies they say, oh, you know, if we're both single when we're forty, we promise to marry each other. Like, you got to keep a backup, and it's a perfectly valid reproductive strategy for uh, a woman. And it just, it's up to the man whether he's willing to accept being a potential also ran in the major and main competition in life. So you in the future, Christina, think or believe that there's a possibility that you might be able to do better than Matthew or Matthew plus some other guy will be better for you. But that's not what works for children. What works for children is you commit. And if you can't commit to Matthew, then you don't date Matthew and you wait until you come across a guy where the idea of having sex with someone else is not appealing. How do you know that that doesn't work for children? How does it, uh, how do I know that? um, Having multiple men around. Well, um, in, in well, whether they're around or not, let's just so let's just say your kids are sort of eight and ten, right? And you meet some guy and you go off and have an affair with him. Are you more available or less available to your children? Maybe he moves in with me. No, no, no. Forget before he it's moves in. We're talking about the dating part. Hopefully, you don't meet some guy and have him move in the next damn day. Hopefully, you're going to at least vet this guy for a year before you allow him around your children, knowing the risks of non-biological parents, non-biological pseudo-parents around children. you got to vet the guy for at least a year, right? So you're dating and having weekends away and vetting so this we'll guy hang out, for— and hang out with the kids. And let me, let me finish that. my thought. Let me finish my thought. So you're dating and vetting this guy and going for weekends away and all that for a year. Are you more available— the same or less available to your children while, while you're having this affair? Well, so my children are my first priority, and I wouldn't do something that would make me less available. I could... I could. Okay, then you can't have affairs. By you definition, affairs. if you're off having an affair, you are not there for your children. You can have an affair and be around your children. No, you can't. I hope you're not having sex in front of your children with strangers. <laughs> you can't. You cannot have an affair and be with your children at the same time. Well, I don't, I don't know why we... Um, no, no, no. Still talking, still talking to Christina. She'll survive. She's a big girl. I, right? can't, I can't chime in? <laughs> no, no. Wow. This is something I'm trying to talk about with Christina. This is basic math. You cannot be in two places at the same time. It's called an alibi, right? You cannot have an affair with another guy outside the home and still be equally there for your children. No, I don't think that's true. What's not true? Reality? You can you can be around your children and have the guy around. It's not like you're having sex twenty four seven with this guy because if you, if you were having sex with with your husband and you're still around your kids, you know, like it that that doesn't make any sense. Okay, if you're not in the house and your children are in the house, are you physically with them? No, but I can be in the house. You can be in the house having the affair. Okay. Well, uh, come on, now, come on, Christina. Like, let's let's not let's not talk at this level. First of all, you can't you can't bring the man into the house until you've thoroughly vetted him to know he's not going to be dangerous to your children, right? So the first, the initial months, at least, 
of your affair must be out of the house, right? Um, Can we at least agree on that part? Okay, whatever. Okay, so then you're having an affair outside the house for many months where you are physically not there and available to your children. Now, Matthew then gets the fun task, or you get the fun task, when your children at the age of 8 or 10 say, where's mommy? Oh, mommy's having sexy time with her special friend this weekend, (laughs) or whatever, right? I mean, you either lie to your children, or you tell them the truth, which is terrifying for them. Because they're looking at the pair bonding stability of their parents, right? Sure. And what's going to happen to your children's respect for you if you're basically abandoning them to go have sex with some guy they don't even know? Okay, let's... Um... No, I'm still talking, still talking to Christina. What's that? Still talking to Christina. Okay, okay. I don't know if she's talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> she wants... No, she can tell me to... She doesn't want to talk to me anymore. That's fine. Okay, Until that you're, happens, not, you're not listening still to what to I Christina. said. So you can just... Okay, go ahead. Okay, you can just take what you said and go with it. No, go ahead. What? Me? You said I wasn't listening to what you said. And I'm sorry if I spoke over you, but I didn't hear. But so go ahead. Well, well what, I, what I said is that, like, I, I think maybe our conceptions of an affair are different, right? I'm just thinking of just someone, you know, someone you're friends with, someone who knows your kids. You hang out with them at home, hang out with them other times. You know, it's not like, I, I don't think it has to be an affair in the, in the traditional sense of what that means. So he's just a friend of the family who's hanging around with your home? Something like that, yeah. That's not an affair then? Well, right, but it can be romantic. It can be, you know, a sexual relationship. Then it's an affair. <laughs> but he can still be hanging out, like he can still be around the home. I can still be where I need to be. It's not mutually exclusive like that. Yes, it is. Okay, well, I don't, I don't think we're going to get any... Obviously, the sexual part of the affair can't be in the house with your children home. Are we at least well, agreed on that? Do I have sex with my husband in the house with the children home? What's the difference? Well, um, <laughs> not in the same room. But the thing is, you already know your husband. You've established the relationship, right? So I don't know about other guys out there, of course. I can't speak for all men. But if I want to embark on a hot sexual affair with a woman... If I was single and she said, why did you come over and watch The Little Mermaid with my kids? I'm like, that doesn't sound like a lot of action to me. <laughs> it sounds like I'm a babysitter. Okay, well, that's obviously it's... not the kind of affair I want. I'm not thinking like traditional what, what people do, okay? Okay, but so, so you, you, let's say you meet this guy. I don't know where you meet him. Where would you meet A coffee shop or something? Where would you meet this guy? Uh, sure. I don't know. Okay, so let's just say you meet him at a coffee shop, and um, he, I, I assume, I don't know if you wear a ring or whatever, but, but I assume it would come up if you're romantically, even remotely interested in each other, you have to tell him you're married very quickly, right? Okay, may, maybe it's someone I've known for a long time. Maybe it's someone I've been friends with for years, and so I already know him. No, no, that's too easy. <laughs> that's too easy. And, and do you have someone like that in mind at the moment? Possibly. Oh, you do? 
No, I mean, nothing, nothing. No, no, this is great. I'll give you this one. Okay, so there's another guy you've known for years that you're thinking of having an affair with at the moment. Well, not exactly. Come on. What are you talking about? Are you backing off? Do you want to retract the statement? Yeah, I want to retract the statement. Because it's a false statement or because you just don't want to talk about it? I don't want to talk about it. So you do have a guy (laughs) that you want to have an affair with. Have you told Matthew? No, there's people who are are potentially, right? Potentially. Okay. Okay. So there are guys around that you've known for years that you might want to have an affair with. Sure. Yes. And have you told Matthew this? Yes. So, Matthew, you know the guys that she might want to have an affair with. I don't know them personally. Wait, they've been around your girlfriend for years, but you don't know them? Well, we've only been dating for a few months. So you know that there are guys who are floating around her that she wants to have an affair, or she might want to have an affair with. They're a candidate for an affair at some point in the future. Yes. And how do you feel about that when she told you? Well, when I, when I initially found out, it was upsetting to me. And we talked about it for a while when we first got together. And um, she... She because uh because I wasn't comfortable with it, she agreed to um be exclusive. Uh as long as I was <clears throat> open to considering uh polyamory. And I, I agreed to that. And uh I have been considering it. And um But for her, not for you in particular, right? Yes. Right. So this means that there's an imbalance of sexual attraction here. What that means is that you are reaching too high up the scale of feminine attractiveness and you're willing to let her sleep around to make up for your own relative lack of attractiveness. Listen, do you think if you were Brad Pitt, do you think think that if if you were Brad Pitt, she'd be like, okay, but I really want to be able to bang some guy from high school, right? I mean, there must be some mismatch. Because if you're willing to do something, Matthew, that makes you, if you're willing to consider something that goes against your sensibilities, that goes against what you want, it must be because you feel that you must compromise in order to maintain her attraction to you. I mean, if she had that conversation with me, oh my God, it would be like, no, not in a million years. And the fact that you even think that's possible if you want to be with me in some sort of committed relationship that you can go and have sex with other guys, I don't even know what to say. Like, that, that is absolutely a deal breaker. Because I would be heartbroken if you wanted to go out and have sex with other guys. And I got to go, you got to come home with some other guy's cologne all over your body. And with that slow walking, loose lip, post-orgasmic happiness that you didn't get from me. Ew! I love you. I want to be with you. I'm committed to you. I expect the same thing in return. Oh, you got to pay for your own coffee and I'm out of here. 
but you don't feel confident enough to take that stand, to make that statement, to uncomplicate your life. Because I'm telling you, man, Matthew, 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 I don't care how pretty she is. Obviously, you do. And you're still in the haze of not thinking straight because you're in the first six months of a romantic relationship, which means your brain has turned into a self-flagellating, dick-knacked squid. So she's giving you this challenge, which says, hey, am I pretty enough that you're willing to massively complicate your life and break your heart just to be with me? What's my vagina worth to you? Is it pure gold? Are you willing to sacrifice your own future happiness and stability just to be with me? And you don't feel confident enough to say, hell no. You want to be the mother of my children? You want to be with me? And then you want to go bang other guys and bring them around our kids and have me explain that? And maybe you like them better or maybe you like them worse or maybe they br you bring home an STD or God knows what. Maybe it's not even he wears a condom, but there's bed bugs in his bed that crawling out of his ass. I don't know. But no, that's not going to be part of my life. It's not going to be part of my future. I love you. I'm not sharing. <laughs> Sorry doesn't work that way for me because this is not something that you want. And the only reason that you'd be willing to even consider it is because you feel that you're not bringing enough to the table just as you are. So you have to bring other penises around potentially just to keep her interest. And I'm sorry to be so blunt. And I wish that there were people who'd already told you this before, but that's what you need to hear. How do you know it's not in my interest? For your woman to have sex with other men? Yeah. Because your feelings told you that right away. Because we have evolved for monogamy. Because your genetic material is precious to you and the stability and happiness of your children are precious to you and the stability and happiness of your relationship are precious to you. Well, again, you're assuming that I'm going to be unhappy. You are going to be unhappy. You already know that because you told me that. That the idea of Christina having sex with other guys makes you unhappy. This is not a theoretical thing. Well, it is theoretical because I, well. No, you already had the feelings. And she said, will you crush those feelings? to enhance my future potential sexual access to men I find more attractive than you? And you're like, okay, because <laughs> you're pretty. Oh, God, please don't. No, no, I want to understand those feelings. Well, you're not, because you said you're willing to consider. She's walking out the door. You know she's going to go and have sex for a weekend with another guy. And your kids are saying... Where's mommy going? How, in, in what potential scenario is that not a terrible fucking day? On what planet is that not like the worst thing ever? Sorry, mom's off chasing penis. <laughs> I hope she'll be back. Probably will. Let's play hide-and-go-seek. She's off playing hide-the-salami. Let's play hide-and-go-seek. How is that not a terrible, terrible day? Well, what does it mean? Where's she going? She's going to go kiss other men. But she kisses you, Daddy. 
Not this weekend, she doesn't. <laughs> what if that guy's my best friend? He ain't your best friend if he's banging your wife. I don't even know why I need to say these things, <laughs> but I do. Because he knows it's going to fuck up your life. He knows that it's going to make your children cry. He knows that it's going to break your heart. He knows that it's going to crush your pride like a meteor from hell landing on an ant, which still has more testosterone than you, apparently. So there's no friend on the planet who says, love you, Matt. The way I'm going to express it is bend your wife over the sink. Well, you know, it sounds like you have an idea of what polyamorous relationships are. And that no, 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 be, don't, no, no. Sure. Let's get back to you. Sorry, man. I hate to do this. Don't give me this theoretical crap. You're just thumbing through a dictionary of abstract defensiveness and, and uh, obfuscation. Your feelings when your wife is heading out for a sex weekend with another guy. And he ain't your friend. Because if he is your friend, he ain't banging the mother of your children. All right? So that you have to explain to your kids where mommy's going that weekend. That man is not your friend. That man is selfish and greedy, lacks compassion, lacks empathy, and is willing to destabilize an entire family for the sake of getting his rocks off. That is not a quality individual. There are plenty of women out there who'll have sex with guys who don't have children, who don't have a husband. The fact that he's willing to choose this woman means that he either can't get a woman who's unentangled or doesn't give a crap that she's entangled and has children and is willing to just go and get his rocks off anyway. So don't give me this what he's a friend. He is not your friend. He is your enemy. What if the condom breaks, man, and she gets pregnant? What then? What then? What if you don't really like the guy that much and she's carrying his child? Well, I, yeah, we would want to make sure that wouldn't happen. You can't make sure that didn't happen because those buggers swim. And condoms break and condoms fail. I mean, you've heard this show, I don't know if you've heard this show a bunch of times, and the number of women who are like, oops. <laughs> Yeah, I think you can get devices that... that okay, what if it's just an STD? Maybe he doesn't even know he's got it. Are you going to have people tested every single time? Ooh, that's romantic. Blood sample, two weeks, then we'll have sex. Oh, wait, something could have happened in those two weeks because we're all polyamorous, so great. Going to go in with a hazmat suit? Mmm... <laughs> I can't feel anything. <laughs> this is like having sex with a burlap sack in a mountain. <laughs> you don't have any of those complications having sex with each other. It's fun. It's relaxed. You know each other. You know what you like. You're willing to experiment. There's trust. There's virtue. Don't have to explain anything to your kids. Other than, I don't know, mommy rhythmically stubbed her toe last night. Sorry about the noise, <laughs> right? But... You don't have any of those complications. Have sex with each other. It's beautiful. Well, you said I lack confidence, but the the way I see it, there's um, I'm showing a confidence in my selection of her. No, no, no. I, I get what you're saying. Like I'm so confident, you can go out and bang other guys. You'll always come back to me, right? 
Now, now you're afraid that she's not going to be with you if you say that affairs are off the table. You're afraid of asserting yourself. That's I don't true, know, maybe because you're... I already said that once. And, and... Oh, come on, man. Don't weasel me. <laughs> don't Clinton me, bro. I did, though. Because you already said that she said that she wanted it, but you, like, she, you said, I don't want it, and she said, will you be willing to consider it? Right? And you said, okay. Because if you'd said, no, I'm not willing to consider it, if you want to be with me, you got to be with me. If you want to have my children... You can't be tarting around with other guys. Again, the fact that we have to have these conversations is just so wild to me. No, no, you can't go and have sex with other guys because we're a family. I'm not explaining your boomerang hoo-hoo to our children. Why not? What is the benefit to you? Tell me what is the benefit to you? How does this make your life better? Forget what she wants for the moment, just for the moment. Help me understand, Matt. How does your wife having sex with other men, the mother of your children going out, being unavailable to you, unavailable to your children, getting entangled with some other guy, how is that a benefit to you? Forget what she wants. Forget what she needs. Forget her preferences just for the moment. If you can explain to me how it is a benefit for you regardless of her feelings, I'm open to hearing it. It's not about me. It's about the children. Oh, my God. Do you have an identity? Okay. Can you not know what is good for you? Explain to me how it is good for you for your wife to have affairs. You mean if we don't have children? No, just no. How it's... Just having kids. Let's put the kids. I only fundamentally care because you're thinking of having kids. Otherwise, it's like, I don't care. Do what you want, right? But if there are kids involved, I'm all over it, right? Well, then so let's you talk have about that two children. That's... You have two children. You explain to me <clears throat> as a husband and a father, what is the benefit of your wife having affairs? Uh, more people involved in the kid's life. You don't have to have affairs for that. They're called play dates. They don't have to come with dildo cakes. They're called grandparents, cousins, neighbors, people you meet at Starbucks who you don't have sex with, but rather introduce to your children because they have children. People from school, people from the Boy Scouts, people from the playground, lots of people that you don't have to pour Crisco on. Right, but th- those relationships aren't going to be primary in your in your child. Really? Grandparents aren't going to be primary. Is that your theory? Compared Some guy who parents. wants to have sex with your wife is going to provide a more quality family interaction for your children than their own grandparents. Yeah. You are mad. I don't even know what to say. The idea that some guy who wants to fuck your wife is going to provide a more quality experience for your children than their own grandparents is mental. Unless your grandparents are insane and evil. Well, we don't need to go there. (laughs) Okay, but people who are there for the children are more likely to be positive to the children than people who are there to have sex with your wife. Because they're not there for the children, they're there to have sex with your wife. Because if they were there for the children and not to have sex with your wife, they'd be a family friend your wife wouldn't be having an affair with. Why is that? Why is what? 
well, how do you how do you know that they that they'd just be a family friend? I don't know what, what that means. Why is why is that like a sign of? Oh, because respect? if somebody if somebody's friends of yours and enjoys spending time with your children and doesn't want to have sex with your wife, they're a friend, not an affair by definition, right? Yeah, but I'm saying okay, if so they do want that have, one. I'm saying if they do want to have sex with their uh, my wife and they're a family friend, why does that? They're not a family friend if they want to fuck your wife. Why? <laughs> because it fucks up your family. How do you know? I'm I'm your friend and I want to give you a shiv in the ribs. Well, it's one or the other. You can give me a shiv in the ribs or you can be my friend. You can't be both. <laughs> because I still need you to tell me how it is beneficial to you for your wife to have an affair. What is good for you in that scenario? Forget the children. Forget what she needs. How does your life improve when your wife is out having affairs? Well, it could improve my competition level, right? It could up my game. Wait, are you saying that if your wife is actually going to have an affair with someone else, you'll be nicer to her? (laughs) No, but... You'll be more considerate? You'll be better in bed? You can do those things without your wife going to have an affair. Well, when... when because it has to be something time, that only this does, right? If it's something you can achieve just by being a better person, then you don't need foreign dick in your wife's private parts to be a better person. Well, if she's having an affair, maybe I'll buy her flowers. You know, you can buy her flowers without her having an affair, right? No, obviously, uh, I'm going to treat her... Um, I-, I want to treat her as best I can. Okay, so you don't need to, you're not going to up your game if she has an affair. So let's try another answer as to what's in it for you, Matthew. And you understand, I'm on your side here. I'm not trying to make your life difficult. I'm actually trying to make it fun and easier. What is the benefit for you? Forget your kids, forget her for the moment. What is your selfish benefit and motivation in your wife coming to you and saying, I'm going to go and screw some guy I met at Starbucks? I keep coming back to her happiness. I know that's not for me. No, that is not enough. If her happiness comes at your expense, all you're going to find is resentment in your heart. Well, I know you've talked in podcasts before. Like you'll you'll watch a movie you don't like because your wife likes it, and it gives her pleasure, so that makes you happy. Right. Right. So this is the same thing. If it makes her happy. That's because watching a movie with my wife, and usually I'll find a way to enjoy it, Watching a movie with my wife doesn't threaten the integrity and stability of my entire family structure. (laughs) So I don't feel that the stakes are that high, right? You can't do something because, you know, she, sorry, Christina, talk about you like you're not here. I apologize. But she said honesty, self-knowledge, compassion, and empathy, which means she logically can't be happy doing something that makes you unhappy. The only way she can go and have an affair if it makes you unhappy is if she's a cold-hearted bitch, which I don't think she is. I think you guys just haven't thought things through. I don't think she is, just to be fair, right? But if it's making you miserable and it's making your kids miserable, it would be woefully selfish for her to go and do it. And so her happiness 
can't exist if you're unhappy. You're saying, well, I, I want her to be happy at my expense. Okay, well, then that's a universal rule. Universal rule, which means she can't want something that makes you unhappy, which means she's not going to go and have the affair, right? Have you ever had an affair? M- married, you mean? Well, um, no. You mean, have I ever been unfaithful in a relationship? Sure, yes. I don't know, I kissed another girl when I was a teenager, but no, no, not in any fundamental way. But certainly not in, in a marriage, and it's never going to happen for either of us. I guess I'm wondering how you know that it's going to make you unhappy. Just because you have some initial uneasiness about it. Because I can't upgrade. Right? If they put you in first class on an airplane, do you say, I want an upgrade? No. Unless you want to fly the plane. (laughs) I don't want to fly the plane. That's not an upgrade to me. (laughs) I like landing at less than 90 degrees. Right? So... I can't upgrade in my relationship. And my wife can't upgrade. Now, something's missing for Christina, which is why I was asking earlier, well, what's missing that you want to upgrade, right? That's important. The solution to that is to figure out what's missing, not to say, I'll backfill it with an affair and destabilize my family and break the hearts of my children and break the hearts of my husband. But that's that's not a solution, right? So if you're not in a relationship where you can't imagine an upgrade, I cannot conceive of a better woman than my wife. I, I, can't, I couldn't design one. If I was some obsessive Japanese robot sex engineering genius fanboy with entirely sticky hands, I could not design a better woman than my wife. There is nobody out there who could conceivably take her place. This is why we try to stay healthy. <laughs> what if it's us or best, right? What if your wife wanted to go outside of the monogamous vows that she won't? She won't because she knows she cannot upgrade from me. She can't do better than me. I can't do better than her. But if she did, you would No, no, no. Help her? She no, no. <laughs> doesn't happen. People are not random. Right? Yeah, I understand that. I mean, have you ever it's heard of a movie you, where they know, say, well, we just, paid, we just paid $20 million for Brad Pitt, but let's put the guy in the background there as the lead and put Brad Pitt in as an extra, right? Just, people don't act randomly. That's what character and virtue and integrity are all about, is reducing the randomness of interactions with people. Right? There's, a, there's a terrifying movie called The, the Importance of Being, The Importance, uh, God, what's it called? Importance of Being I, I referred to it as The Importance of Being Naked or something like that, but it, oh. it's some movie, uh, some European movie, and some guy wants to have an affair with a woman, and uh, he finally, oh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, that's it, The Unbearable Lightness of Being Naked, because it's a European film, so... Rather than have a quality script, they have uh, flesh. This guy wants to have an affair with a woman, and he has an affair with her, and, and she's needy, and she wants him, and he decides to abandon his wife and his family. And he finally tells his wife and his family, and he leaves, and his kids are crying, and his wife is crying, and he 
drives across the town and he goes to the woman, the woman's apartment to, to be with her for the rest of his life. And she's left. There's not even any furniture there. She's just gone. Now that's the kind of randomness in people. Oh, come be with me. Let's be with me forever. Go, go tell your wife. I'll be here waiting. He comes back and she's moved. No forwarding address. She's gone, baby, gone. You think you know someone and then just one day. Right, right, right. Now, of course, people, that's back to our selection and we (laughs) go on like that forever, that the predators are other people's randomness. But when you have quality people in your life, and I'm not saying that you don't, I think you guys are great. And I hope that you get the love in what I'm saying, right? I'm really trying to do my very best to give you arguments for the best life you can have. And it's not about reserving open dick portals in the future, right? It's about if you are not willing to commit to each other, then don't. And if you are, then do. But don't do with one foot out the door. Don't half do it, right? That's like one foot on the dock, one foot on the pier. You just end up getting wet. But um, when you are around quality people and you have talked through these issues and, Christina, I know that you don't want to do something that breaks Matt's heart, that a sexual encounter is not worth breaking the heart of who by then should be the love of your life. It's not worth it. There's no big throbbing man meat that is intense enough to make it worth stepping in stilettos over your husband's heart and leaving it pinpricked and broken and pouring out, right? So if it's going to hurt your the love of your life, you don't do it. And so that's why, Matthew, you need to find the answer. And if there, there, there's no answer. There is no answer that makes your, the, your wife and the mother of your children having sex with other guys, there is no conceivable way that is beneficial to you, and there's no conceivable way that that's beneficial to your children. Now, could you construct an elaborate scenario wherein some wonderful, magical guy comes into your life and he's wonderful with the children, the children love him, and Matthew, you love him, and you're totally happy that Christina might... Oh, forget it. These scenarios don't exist. These scenarios don't exist. Because if someone is that wonderful a person, then why would they want to get involved with a married couple? Do you think really that relationships get easier to navigate when you start stacking the deck with penises and vaginas? Do you think having more people in the relationship makes it easier to navigate or harder to navigate? I think we know the answer to that, right? And so if you have a great relationship, just the two of you, you're doing really well. If you don't have a great relationship to the point where you want to go and have sex outside, it means you're not doing really well. It means bringing somebody else. If you can't navigate and manage and satisfy each other's needs, bringing some third party's needs and complications into the relationship ain't going to simplify it. And it's not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse. It's going to make things more complicated. I just, I can't for the life of me imagine any scenario in which I'd say, yeah, I'd like to get involved with a married couple and help raise their children. And I mean, come on, seriously, can you imagine a scenario for you, Matt, in which case you'd say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, what could be better? Well, one of the reasons that I'm considering this um, and the argument that it's hard to find inescapable logic is 
it actually comes from you because you've said before that you should parent as if your child, you know, should they, what, could they choose to have any parent, they would choose you. And I, I guess part of my thinking is, well, what if I actually gave them a choice, you know, instead of saying, well, what if? And wouldn't wait, that wait, hang on, 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 hang on. No, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay, there's some things that are mental exercise that children should not be exposed to, right? First of all, of course, you you know, you and Christina, you're choosing each other. My daughter didn't choose me as a father. Now, for me to parent as if my daughter could choose any man in the world is a great mental exercise for me. In the same way that, you know, you, you don't take your partner for granted when you're married, right? Right. That's very different from bringing my daughter down to a warehouse, lining up 50 guys and say, go on, choose a dad. That would be traumatic for her, right? <sighs> yes. Because then she would be like, well, wait a minute. Don't you want to be my dad anymore? No, no, it's an, it's an exercise, a mental exercise. Here, I'll go stand with these 50 guys. Now, we'll choose a dad, right? But that would be weird for her, right? And scary. Like, what the hell is going on? So it's one thing to have that as a sort of mental exercise to keep your game up. It's another thing to actually do it, right? Because when you guys decide to get, if you decide to get married and have kids, then you've already had the lineup. My daughter didn't have the lineup, right? She's never going to get it, right? But you guys will have already had the lineup. So you don't get the lineup again later. Yeah, it wouldn't really be a lineup. It's just... Um, you would, she would be born into a family that already had two or three dads. No, because if you want, look, there are people who love my daughter and there are people who take care of my daughter, but nobody has to have sex with each other, right? What, 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 if you want something for your kids, then yeah, have people around who love your kids, say who your kids love, who they're dying to see and have all of that wonderful stuff around. But why on earth? That involves rutting is beyond me, right? I mean, just pay a babysitter, not with penis. But you understand the argument, or you understand what I was saying, right? That if you have multiple... I mean, the the people who would be in the periphery, you know, your your close friends, the family. It's not the same as like being a close um, parent. It, I, I'm not going down this road because people can be close to your kids without having sex with your wife. Again, the things I need to say on this show are incomprehensible to me. People can love your children. Without having sex with your wife. People can be close to and care about... I mean, I can't even say it. It's just, it's too ludicrous, right? Now, you know I can see pictures of both of you, right? Uh, yeah, I guess I do know that. Yeah, because, and we're not going to publish these, of course, right? But I'm telling you, what would you rate her on a 1 to 10 attractiveness scale? Oh, we've done this exercise, and uh, we, we said the same thing about each other. Uh, like, I think... We each thought we were a six and the other was an eight. 
Wait, she thinks she's a six? And she thinks that you are more attractive than she is? Yes. Yeah, it's not true. You know, you guys are being nice to each other. It'd be nice if you were nice to each other to the point of not wanting to have affairs and all that, but uh, no. I'm trying to find my picture. (laughs) Oh, that's not a bad picture. Okay, well. Okay, that only makes my point more. That at least at this moment, right, physically she looks to be more attractive than you, and I'm I'm a fairly good judge of this kind of stuff. You don't have to take, right? And this doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, of course, right? <laughs> nice looking guy and all that. But, you know, she's very attractive. And the other thing, she has youth and fertility and you're just getting started in life, right? Which means that she has more sexual market value than you do, right? Right, right. So you've overshot attractiveness wise. And so you feel you need to make up your seven to her nine by offering her penis on the side. <laughs> hey, is me plus extra penis, uh, does that m- equal nine? Wait, are you saying you want to join our circle? I didn't understand that. I will pay. There's no <laughs> amount of money I would pay to not join that kind of circle. But no, what I'm saying is that your basic statement is if she's an eight and you're a seven or if she's a nine and you're a seven or whatever, then you feel you need to like you're like a short guy and she doesn't date short guys. But if you stand on a couple of extra penises, then you, are you tall enough? Like, can you date her if she gets extra penises on the side? Right. So you're simply saying that it's the me plus stuff that I talked about in the Robin Williams video. Right. Me plus optional penises equals equality in this relationship. Right. I don't have hair, but if I wear a penis toupee, <laughs> will you date me or whatever? Right? If you don't like guys with no hair. So what I'm saying is that you need to have the confidence to say, I'm not going to, I'm not willing to accede to a condition in a relationship that's going to hurt me. And, and I'm also not willing to date someone, right? Because I don't think that she knows how much it would hurt you. I mean, maybe you've talked about it and you've said, well, I'll consider or whatever. But if she really cared, she'd say, okay, well, if it's really upsetting to you, then it's off the table because I don't want to hurt you. But I'm telling you, man, think of her at 250 pounds. Right. Do you really think if she said at 250 pounds, yeah, I'll date you, but I also want to have sex with other guys? Come on. You know how this is working, right? Well, actually, she wouldn't be able to get sex. So, No. Um... Well, you don't think 250-pound <laughs> women have sex? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Google the following term. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Chasing chublets? I can't remember how it goes. But... Um, no, she would be able to have, but, but you, what you're saying is that you wouldn't be with her if she was 250 pounds, right? No, I'm not saying that. Oh, so you're saying if she was 250 pounds, she would then still be able to demand penis on the side and you'd be okay with that. It's a good exercise. Um, I will. You can do better. And by that, I don't mean that you can do better than Christina. I don't know. Maybe you can. It's only been a couple of months. But you can do better than offering up your own future heartbreak in order to date a woman. There's something, have you ever heard of this phrase, the shit test? Oh, yeah. Okay. This is a shit test. Yeah. And actually, uh, (laughs) 
Uh, that's what she's, I. She's reaching under. Time. She's reaching under your 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 kilt here and saying, "Do we have peas or bowling balls down there?" <laughs> Unfortunately, you came up pea, but it's a it's a shit test, right? She's just giving you an outlandish request in order to gauge how in lust you are. See. And this is sorry to be so coarse, right? And I'm certainly not saying this is conscious, and I'm not saying that there's not a lot more to her than this. I'm just talking about this particular mechanic. My outlandish requests measure the value of my vagina, measure the value of my prettiness. I can't wait for somebody to make this their ringtone. <laughs> hey, quoted out of context, there's a first. But um, – this is why when, when a woman is, is carrying a very expensive purse or she's wearing very expensive shoes or she's dressed all in white or she's in some very expensive whatever, right? What she's saying is, in general, right, assuming she didn't earn the money herself, what she's saying is, hey, this is what my vagina is worth. <laughs> this is what I got for my eggs at market. <laughs> Ka-ching! Right now, you don't have... The money to buy her stuff so that she can parade around the value of her eggs, right? But she can make outlandish demands, and if you accede to them, that gives her a glow of power. It gives her a glow of value, and it's exactly what nature intends people to do, which is to gauge their sexual market value and get the maximum possible. And so if you're willing to let her have sex with other guys, it's because she's that attractive that you're willing to offer her up to other guys just to get a slice. And that gives her value, pleasure. Yeah, the, the attraction doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, right? What? Well, you're... you're, you're assu- you heard me use the word vagina, right? Okay. Does that mean... Are you, are you living so, in vagina and you misheard me? I don't understand what's going on in this part of the conversation. Well, it's just her... her but what about toy trucks? Her We're not qualities about toy trucks. that are admirable. I'm sorry? Just her qualities that are admirable. That's what attracts me to her. And so if you say... No, but admirable qualities don't make people give you shit tests. The shit test is, I wonder what my eggs are worth. I wonder how besotted this guy is. I wonder how much power I have over him. And And again, please understand, Christina, I know you're still there. I'm not saying this is some big conscious thing. And maybe I'm completely wrong, but this is my, my thought. Is that, wow, he's that besotted by me. He's, my, my eggs are so valuable. My attractiveness is so besotting to a man that he's willing to share me with other men just to be with me. Damn, I must be hot. It's like the crazy thing. If you're crazy... You know that hot crazy, the hotter the crazier, right? If you're crazy and guys still want to be with you, then your craziness is also the measure of how hot you are. So if you can be random, if you can be a bitch, if you can like be mean and, and guys still come swarming back, well, that'd be hot. I must be hot, baby. And so these outlandish requests, that's what, again, I'm no expert. This is my understanding of, you know, just... What can I get away with? How, which translates into how attractive am I? I guess now it's kind of swinging in the dark because I don't get the sense that you guys have modeled particularly healthy familial relationships beforehand. But um, it is uh, 
you know, it's something that you listen to patiently and say, not in a million years, honey. Would it no, be different? you're looking for the spineless guy down the street who's going to pant after you like a puppy dog and just, oh, yeah, uh, scratch me behind the ear and I'll, be, uh, I'll just lick your leg. And, uh, no, no, come on. Would it be different if both of us wanted polyamorous relationships? You know, like if I was... If I Given you different out. levels of attractiveness, we're talking about what if one of you could fly and one of you was a narwhal. I am not going to deal with these kinds of theoretical situations. All right. Well, I have, um, I, I, I have some introspection to do about it, for sure. All right. All right. Uh, but, well, I appreciate the call. I'm sorry, Christina, talking about you like you weren't here and all of that. And I hope that you appreciate, uh, even if I'm completely wrong, that I'm, I'm doing my best to try and bring happiness, <laughs> happiness to you guys. Because I think if you can commit uh, and, and be more empathetic to what each other need, I think that would be fantastic. Is she off the air? Uh, I'm here. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Have a great night. You too. All right. Well, up last on the show is. Can you do another call, Steph? <laughs> Sorry, just the word narwhal. Um, it brought that to mind. All right, can't be long, but I'm willing to. I'm willing to go in. Okay. All right. Up next is Matthew number two. He wrote in and said, if one is trying to spread philosophy in order to change the world, at what point should one stop using the vestiges of the old system to do so? Does using those institutions make one's message ineffective? This is regards to using roads, taxpayer-funded schools, that type of thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, people could judge the rationality of my arguments. I mean, if, if people want to say, but you use roads, but you're an immigrant, but you use socialized health care, but you were educated in government schools. All they're basically saying is thinking is hard, but I'm good at tripping people. I'm not a good runner, but I'm good at setting stupid traps, right? I mean, just, you know, deal with the rational arguments. You, you can always find something that someone has had to compromise at some point, you know, who cares, right? Well, I mean, the arguments stand whether or not, right, this is ad hominem, right? I mean, which is against the man rather than against the, the argument. And there's some vague value in that at the beginning. I've made sort of in praise of personal attacks video. But um, when it comes to a carefully constructed argument, you know, like I did this, this migrant video, which was a rant, right, a very passionate rant going over half a million on YouTube. And then I spent a couple of days putting together a very reasoned, tightly reasoned argument, which is cooking at 30K. So it's like 15 times, uh, you know, if, if people want to focus on, well, Steph, immigration, but you're an immigrant, it's like, let's say I am. Let's say that somehow I had complete free will at the age of 11 when my mother dragged me from England to Canada. And therefore, nobody has to look at any of the moral arguments I put out almost 30 years later, <laughs> 40 years later. So uh, tomorrow is my birthday. <laughs> Feel free to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate and give me some sugar. But um, yeah, so I mean, the, you know, people, well, he was, he was an immigrant, so he's an immigrant. Yeah, because when I was 11, I really had a big fucking choice, <laughs> right? So um, so yeah, I mean, just uh, if, if people want to focus on that, then I just move on. 
Well, and that was what I did is is that I, I kind of made the fundamental tactical error of discussing something of substance on Facebook, which is just <laughs> a really horrible idea. See, I have this problem of I listen to you, I listen to Econ Talk, and I have this idea that perhaps the world is getting better educated, et cetera. And, and in reality, then you go on Facebook and realize that it's it's really not. Um, but I've, I've had some success in not being a social progress parasite and – um, when you are starting a conversation with someone who says, well, I'm uh, socially liberal and fiscally conservative and am somewhat of a Republican, at least that's generally how I vote, you can start from a common ground and work towards a more voluntarism, voluntarist anarchist type mindset. But it's you, you can't jump there immediately. Um, and, and that's been what's most successful, uh, at least from my perspective in going stuff. This other one was, was just Facebook where I commented on somebody who had, uh, basically published, a, a, a reposted some mem where if, uh, uh, conservatives were still in charge, black people would still be at the back of the bus. Children would still be working on, uh, in factory labor. And, uh, you know, you're, you would still not know what was in your food. And so I discussed things. <laughs> Sorry, and, just I just want to just want to point that out that that is so liberal style reversal of the truth. The Democrats were the ones behind the most racist measures against blacks from from the KKK to Jim Crow to all of that. Right. The, the Democrats were the most racist party. Uh, the, and the KKK was the military wing of the Democratic Party in the South. And it was the Republicans uh, who, of course, fought to end slavery. It was the Republicans who had black congressmen in their party. It was the Republicans who tried the first Civil Rights Act in the 1880s. Uh, it was the Democrats who've been blocking all the progress that Republicans have been trying to make for that. Republicans being more pro-free market, uh, is the free market is what got children out of labor, out of, like out of laboring. I mean, this idea that, that child labor was invented in the Industrial Revolution, like before the Industrial Revolution, in the Middle Ages, oh yeah, it was all just the princess bride and children just cavortled and gambled until they were, eight, like gambled around the field until they were 18. No, they died. <laughs> and the fact that they were alive is because they were working and then they weren't dead. And the fact that they were aggregated in the city rather than dying out in the countryside meant that, that Charles Dickens could cry with his poison pen about them. So and just just want to point out that, you know, this idea that, you know, Republicans are, are racist and hate children and 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 all that. It's it's completely I mean, it, it is, of course, the opposite of the truth uh, in a lot of ways. You know, because Democrats love children so much they want to give them all to single moms because that's just so great for children. Whereas Republicans want two parents to raise them. Oh yeah, they must hate children. So anyway, just go on. Sorry. Well, well, that was actually what I said is, is that the, um, the, the pro segregation movements in the, uh, uh, South in the sixties were Democrat run and, and the South was run by Democrats, et cetera. And, and their argument was, yes, that was true, but we got rid of all of those Democrats and they got over to the Republican party in the seventies. Really? Yes, that was what they said. So the Republican Party just welcomed a whole bunch of KKK members? Yes. I'd really like to see some evidence yes. for that. It'd be quite fascinating. I mean, it is uh, it is the best PR job I've ever seen to convince Southern people or to convince black people that the Democrats are their friends. Uh, it is it is absolutely Oh, no, 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 it's not, no, 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 no. The black people are not stupid. I'm not saying you're saying they are, but black people are not stupid. They don't 
they don't care about the history of I mean, the re, like they want government money. Unfortunately, a lot of blacks are dependent, single moms and all that dependent on government money. And the Democrats give them more government money. So they're willing to whitewash the Democrat history to get the government money. They don't say independently evaluate the information and then go for the Democrats. It's just this is the natural cover up so that it's less embarrassing to vote Democrat. Well, and I brought that up as well, that essentially the Democrats created a dependent class so that they'd have a permanent voting block. And I was told that I was wrong, historically accurate, and that was a lie. Um, and, and was that the extent of the argument? Yes, that was the extent of the argument. A- and then kind of a, a okay, so hang on. so so our lesson here might be if somebody posts an offensive meme or a ridiculous meme or a meme without any arguments, that may not be the best person to start debating with. Y- yes, I learned that lesson again. Like I knew that lesson from 10 years ago back when it was live journal, not Facebook, but I learned that lesson on Facebook now too. Right. There may be a common denominator, which is not the technology involved, but the typists behind it, right? Yes. And and that's why I restricted myself to discussing it with uh, people who are already somewhat inclined, or at least I know are somewhat inclined, because it's easier to move people who are already rational and will respond to rational conversation and and rational. No, like I I started just saying, you know, a couple couple of weeks ago, I'm occasionally we'll glance through some YouTube comments and yeah, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument. You're a fascist, not an argument. I hate you, not an argument. You have a tiny penis. Okay, well, that's an argument. Uh, But anyway, uh, so it's just not an argument, not an argument. And the reason I do that is just, I don't expect anyone to change their mind. I just want people to recognize how common it is on the internet for people to have no idea what an argument is. Like someone today posted literally, Steph, these are the worst and most terrible arguments you've ever made. You're completely wrong. I I expected better of you, right? It's like, wait, you're criticizing me for making bad arguments by making no arguments. (laughs) I don't think this word means what you think it means, right? And I just want people to see that the the level of discourse, the quality of discourse in very important areas is tragically low and people don't even know it. Yes, which is sad. And that's one of the... So you just, just say, it's not an argument. Yeah. It's an offensive series of statements. It's it's a sophistry, but it's not an argument. Like, like the Republican war on women. We want fewer female abortions. You hate women. All right, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so a parallel... Uh, you know, because people can reply to different things. A parallel conversation evolved there, which was um, uh, is essentially somebody said it's not a problem with, uh, um, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats or the left or the right. It's a problem with the system as a whole. And I said, well, I agree with this, hence why I'm an anarchist. And they said, you know, essentially you libertarian anarchists are all alike. You think that no one uh, that you can operate in a vacuum and you don't realize how interdependent everybody is. And, um, you know, my counter to that was actually that's the only way anarchism works is, is that you are all dependent on each other. So you need to cooperate through a market, which is the best way to have people of differing goals achieve mutually acceptable outcomes. And that market can be for um, security services. It can be for uh, education. It can be for anything. And then 
you know, I talked about how taxation is theft. And they said, well, you know, it's amazing how many uh, uh, anarchists and libertarians are educated at, uh, uh, <laughs> excuse me, institutions funded by theft. And the only reason that you have such an education is because of the theft. Therefore, you are not allowed to criticize the theft. And I was right. Like, so, so if if government education produces anarchists, why isn't everyone an anarchist? I mean, it must be because you've disagreed with your government education that you've come to a conclusion different from most people who are in government education. Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that I benefited from it. Well, no. Who's to say you benefited from it? <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I mean, who's to say you benefited from it? Government education. I mean, because, because uh, you know, they had me for 12 goddamn years, and I learned more in a week of doing this show than I learned in about 10 of those 12 years. Like, after I learned my basic math and how to read, it was all just a complete fucking waste of time. And a boring, trapped, hyper-hormonal sardine can of dissociation, uh, desire, uh, fear, and hatred, and a massive dog trapped in a bear trap desire to chew my own leg off and get the hell out. So the idea that I benefited from this, it's like, well, I was unjustly imprisoned and beaten by the guards, but they did set my bone for free. So I guess I can't criticize. Like, did they ever say, I, am, I can't believe Nelson Mandela ever complained about apartheid. I mean, free food and lodging. I mean, he ate that damn food. What the hell right did he ever have? Oh, no, wait, no, he, he's politically correct. So he can complain all he wants. Well, in all fairness, um, essentially room board, which I would have had to pay anyway because I was living in an apartment at the time, and uh, some books that I stopped buying once I realized they weren't actually used for the, the courses, um, and basically nothing else because I went to school on a full academic scholarship, bought me access to about half a million dollars worth of electronics, labs, logic analyzers, etc. So it was a really expensive trade school if I had paid out of pocket, but since they wanted me there, it allowed me access to this is why I did the computer engineering, not the computer science route. You can teach yourself programming languages and databases from books and a computer. But the getting oh, yeah. access to the logic analyzers and FPGAs and ASICs and development boards, especially back then, those boards required way more capital than I had at my disposal. And since no, it was no, but, free— No, no, but—oh, God, you get, I'm sorry to say this to a fellow anarchist, but it's probably worth thinking even further outside the box. The reason why those labs weren't available to you privately is because the government was always providing them publicly. It's that mistaken thing that we say, well, if the government wasn't providing it, it wouldn't be provided. So if there was a demand, like if, if you being able to get logic analyzers um, is, is a value to you and is a value to your future employees, then, I mean, what, well, what I would do is create, if, if there was no government around doing this stuff, is I'd say, okay, let's create this big lab. Let's have kids come in and use it as they want. And let's see who the smartest ones are and, and give them jobs. I mean, wouldn't that be a fantastic way to hire people? I mean, if you're not allowed to give an IQ test or anything. I mean, so these things would be available to kids uh, if they weren't already being provided by the government and they would be free because it'd be huge value in finding the best talent and, you know, they don't charge people to enter American Idol, right, because <laughs> they make money off the whole contest. Well, and in, in a lot of things, I think that um, that's part of what is going to be the logical extension of the maker movement. Right now, it's just, you know, a bunch of people getting together and hacking on stuff and having a common space to do that, which is paid by the dues of the members or by some benefactor or whatever. But realistically, a lot of people um, in the local, my local scene at least, the meetups are a great place to network and find 
places to work or find people to work with you. Right. Um, which actually brings up another thing when you talk about government providing something um, that is not provided by the free market and it's still part of the system. Um, there's actually two different things that happened after this Facebook exchange. One was um, I got laid off. And so as I'm trying to find a job, the question is, what if I can't find a job, especially heading into the holidays? If you don't have a job by American Thanksgiving, you're not getting one until the new year. So should I, they, they call it unemployment insurance. Uh, generally, I view insurance as something that is voluntary, not compulsory, but I've been forced to pay into this system. Do I collect from it or if then am I benefiting from the state? And does this make me a hypocrite and thus uh, invalidate my argument? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have been forced to pay into the system. I don't particularly care. It's not a moral issue to me whether you take it or not. I would argue against the practical value of taking unemployment insurance. Uh, I mean, I've never, uh, I've never taken taken it. But um, and, and the reason is because if you get the unemployment insurance, it undoubtedly is going to blunt your desire to look for work. No question. You you're just going to be so. All you're doing is you're postponing looking for work. And they see this regularly, right? I mean, people who get unemployment insurance um, stop looking for work as hard. And then when their unemployment insurance is about to run out because they're rational actors, they double down on their efforts to get a job. So I think it's a bad idea to take it insofar as you really want to pour as much effort as you can. And this is going to inevitably dull your efforts in that direction, uh, thus making you less employable down the road as you've had more months out of the workplace. So uh, obviously, if you're going to starve to death, You've been forced to pay into it and take out of it. It doesn't particularly matter to me. Uh, you know, when you're in a situation of compulsion, I don't care what moral. There's no moral decision. So you're just in a strategic decision place at that point. Uh, it's like playing chess. It's not good or evil moves. Once you're in a system of compulsion, the good or evil is out of it. But I would definitely say that um, the inevitable result of it is going to be most likely that you're going to blunt your efforts uh, in in looking for work until you get closer to the end, in which case you're in a worse position than if you hadn't taken it. Yeah, and I, I, I seriously doubt I'm actually going to have to to take it. I've you know gotten some callbacks, and we we have some time. The com company liquidated my division, so they're being very decent about it. They gave us two months' notice, and we're going to get severance based on our time at the company. And so it's going to be roughly another two months' salary that I'm going to get paid out as severance. So it's quite likely that I'm going to end up having a new job that I can start uh, immediately after the old one concludes, and um, we'll walk away with the severance as a bonus. But it was a thought experiment of what what if. I always yeah whatever you know whatever keeps you hungry is a good thing. I like to stay hungry. You know you you cannot achieve excellence unless I was just talking about this with the interviewee the other day. You can't achieve excellence unless you have something to beat. And um, whatever keeps you hungry uh, is uh, is a pretty good uh, a good thing to have in your life. Um, and the the final thing was uh, a, a bit of an ethical conflict as far as existing systems and infrastructure, et cetera. Basically, the, the local library board of trustees, they want to build a new building, and they've raised uh, $1.5 million, and there's a vote upcoming that they want to float a bond for the remainder of the money, which is about $1.8 million, to be paid back over 20 years. And of course, the way that the system is set up, they would tax people based on property values, which for the average house in the district is going to be about $50 per year. Um, so wait, what they have a bond. 
which it's due in 20 years, but they're taxing people now? Well, the idea is, is that they float the bond now, get the money now, and then begin collecting the taxes. So they pay the bond back over 20 years at a rate of $50. Oh, that's not going to happen. No, they're, 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 <laughs> they're going to collect the, They're going to float the bond. They're going to collect the taxes. They're going to spend the taxes. And in 20 years, there'll be no money. It's just like Social Security or there might be an IOU. Uh, but there's no way that they're going to save. Governments don't save money for 20 years to pay something, right? That's not how it works. Oh, I think they have to start paying it back immediately. So that, well, then it's, that tax... Okay, so it's not a late maturing bond. They have to pay dividends, and then at some point they'll have to pay... Is it more like a mortgage? I don't quite understand like how mortgage. this stuff works. The, the, way that these, the way that these municipal bonds work is, is that it's more like a mortgage. Okay, so they're getting the money now. They're going to pay it off over 20 years they're going to raise taxes, and supposedly that money's going to go. It probably won't, but supposedly that money is going to go to pay the bond. Okay. Right. And, and after 20 years, the tax is supposed to go away. It never actually does, but that's oh, what's supposed to happen. Um, and so, but the thing is, so on the one hand, this is morally wrong. If for everybody who voted no, the stick-up man is going to come and pick your pocket and, and take the money, and you don't have an option um, unless the whole thing goes down. What... The irony here is is that if you say – let's say half the district uh, was willing to pay more, um, $100 a year, $200 a year. So we'll be the ones who will voluntarily pay for this improvement because we want our children to go there. We want to have that to us, and you guys can free ride on it. That's okay. That bargain can never be struck. That's That's not – it's right. Not allowed I'm sorry. Can we get? The, I, I'm I'm going to fall asleep with this detail. Is is there something particular? You said a burning moral question, and this is for what? A library? Is a library? It's for a library. Yeah, because like there's no internet, so let's have a library. <laughs> okay. It, it's 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 a modern library in that there's uh, community rooms and children's reading rooms and and uh, 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 books on tape and and all of these other types of things. Maker, uh, one of the rooms is apparently going to be a maker space. Uh, there's multifunction rooms. It's it's library. Okay, okay. So it's a, a fantastic library, not just a place for old people to fall asleep in. Okay, That's, we have one of those. And so, what's what's your moral question? Um, is it ethical to vote yes so that my children have a library because I'm willing to pay it even though other people won't and the majority rule goes? Or is that inflicting my will upon someone else? I'm more inclined to say that it's the latter, but I was interested if you had any thoughts on it. I mean, what um, what are the consequences of, of either way? Like, are you going to self-attack? Do you feel like, let's say you vote yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And you say, well, we might as well get some value out of the crashing dollar because in 20 years we're going to be using Bitcoin one or some sort of space dust from Aldebaran to use because it's not going to be the U.S. dollar in 20 years. So we might as well get some value out of it now before the government does a softer, a hard default. Right. Right. So I don't care whether you vote yes or no, because you're already in a system of compulsion right now. It's not like if you vote no, taxes aren't going to go up anyway. I mean, they'll use some other excuse. There'll be some other thing that goes up, whether it's hidden or, or, or direct. So it's not like you're going to save a whole bunch of money or save, you know, massive amounts of, of violence uh, in the system if you vote no for this. On the other hand, you know, do you want the government spending money on a library or weaponry? <laughs> you know, 
if you have to choose, I guess there's worse things than a library, right? So my question is, what does it matter what you vote? Like, I mean, do, do you feel like, oh, if people find out about it, or do you feel like you're going to get criticized? You're going to criticize yourself? Like, I don't, I don't really understand why it's important. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean it's not important. I just not quite understand how it is. Um, because if I vote yes, I feel like I'm mugging little old ladies to give my kids a better library. Well, the little old ladies have no problem mug- mugging your kids for their old age pensions. So I, I think your kids can't possibly come out ahead uh, of their combat with the aged. I mean, the, the young pe- the old people are getting like three or four or five times more out of things like uh, the medical care that they get, prescription drug programs, uh, social security. They're getting way more out of it than they ever paid into it. And the difference is being paid by your kids. So, you know, you want to go mug some old ladies and give money to your kids. Uh, You can't possibly mug them enough, you know, unless you buy them solid gold, individualized, personalized libraries for themselves. Then you can't possibly rob the old ladies as much as the old ladies are robbing your kids. So (laughs) I've got no problem with that. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I hadn't looked at it that way, is, is that at least my kids are only robbing the little old ladies for 20 years. The little old ladies are robbing my kids for as long as they can stay alive. How about the national debt? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're talking 50 bucks a year? Okay, old ladies, I'll tell you what. I won't vote for the 50 bucks a year. You pay my portion of the national debt, the unfunded liabilities, and all of the extra costs of being old that you're getting out that you didn't pay in for. How's that for a deal? Okay, so you owe me about a million dollars, and I'll not charge you the 50. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I actually have a better one that I always float out, which is, I'll tell you what, I'll continue to pay for your Social Security if um, I never get to collect it and never, like, I'll... I'll pay in Social Security until I die. I'll never collect it as long as all of my descendants never have to pay into it or collect it. I would make that bargain in a heartbeat. Right. That's very, uh, very uh, loving of you towards the next generation. Like I just did an essay today and I'll read it tomorrow about how one of the reasons why government grows is that there aren't enough men and there aren't enough men who have the motivation of protecting their children's futures from the government to fight the government, right? They, just, they don't, they're not enough fathers around. Lots, lots of guys are like, yeah, I got video games. I, you know, I got my job. I, you know, I mean, but, but if you have kids, you become very concerned as you know, about the future uh, and, and what kind of world you're leaving to your kids. And once you can get men to stop having children, they stop fighting the government because they just, they don't have really anything to fight for. what's the point, right? So, I appreciate your concern for that. Well, also, if going back to the R versus K gene theory from the beginning of the uh, the show is is that if you can get them to stop caring about the children quite so much, it doesn't matter that they have them. Oh yeah, that's true. It's effectively the same thing. Yeah. If if they go so, to one yeah, of those I mean, project I, baby farms and uh, was it girlfriend farms and and yeah. you know have a couple of kids there, it doesn't particularly matter. And in fact, you could even argue that they would be less inclined to fight the government because the government subsidizes their lifestyle and takes care of their children for them. Right. Yeah. So I mean, if if you can get some goodies for your kids, uh, you know, I mean, it's fine. You know, it's it's. Um, it's it's perfectly fine. I, there's no moral standard by which people can say, oh, you're hypocritical, you voted for this, or you didn't vote. I mean, vote or don't vote. I mean, vote for this or, you know, but but don't self-attack, you know, based upon what you have to do to survive in a concentration camp, you know. I maybe, I stole some of the guard's candy bar because I was really hungry and, I mean, that's a violation of property rights. 
you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're not in a voluntary situation. And, uh, you know, don't break the law, obviously. Uh, that puts you in a, a less voluntary, <laughs> even less voluntary situation. But I wouldn't, uh, you know, I think this is uh, kind of precious in a way, like eh, vote or don't vote. But, you know, I, I wouldn't waste the time on, on trying to unravel the moral complexities of how to survive and what to do in a situation of foundational coercion. Um, you know, like when I was a, a kid, uh, I, I would sometimes take a quarter from my mom's purse to go play a video game at the mall. You know, do I sit there and say, oh, but I violated property rights? Nah, I was just trying to grab a little bit of happiness in a miserable situation. So I'm perfectly fine with it. So that would be my suggestion to cut yourself some slack, focus on the big fight, spread peaceful parenting, which I'm sure you're doing. And that's where your claim and flag should be staked and planted, uh, not uh, worrying about this other stuff, which you have no control over and which you fundamentally can't really affect one way or the other anyway. So I'd let that stuff go and focus on the good that you can bring. Stay away from memes and talk to parents about being nicer. <laughs> That's my big suggestion. Yeah, it's actually doubtful that one vote is actually going to make a difference anyway. But, uh, you know, there's only 5,000 people or whatever in the district. But um, it was it was interesting. Th thanks for the advice. I, I do appreciate it. It gives me something to think about. You're very welcome. And thank you, everyone, for the last call in my 48th year. Last show in my 48th year, I will be 49 years old tomorrow, hanging on to that youth demographic of 18 to 49 for one more year. A great thing about surviving a deadly illness like cancer, hey, you never, ever complain about birthdays again. Glad to have them. Hope to have more. There is no creak uh, in my body that can possibly match the joy of being still this side of the sod. So if you'd like to make my birthday even better, more special, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show and uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful night, everybody. I guess I'll see you next year.